0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very special episode. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of America Adapts. In this episode, we travel to New York City to learn about urban forestry and climate adaptation. There are 30,000 acres of parkland in New York. Most of us think of playgrounds, basketball courts, and concrete, but forested parklands make up nearly a quarter of New York's parks. You'll learn the critically important role they play for all New Yorkers. This is an epic episode covering the length of New York City, I spoke with a diverse list of experts, all working to make New York more resilient to climate change through their urban forest. First off, I want to thank American Forest for their generous sponsorship of this episode. You'll discover the unique role American Forests play in developing partnerships to address climate change. Also, I want to thank the Natural Areas Conservancy, New York City's Parks and Recreation Department, and the US Forest Service for providing the experts and the support to make this episode happen. I thought I knew New York, But as you listen to this episode, you'll discover there's so much more to the city through their urban parks. This is an exciting adventure, and I look forward to sharing it with you. To learn what is happening with adaptation and urban forestry, my host took me throughout the city. In this podcast, I will take you, my listeners, with me on this journey visiting parks, meeting citizen activists, and the experts who are making sure the Big Apple is ready and resilient to climate change in the years ahead. And in case you're wondering, I love New York! Kick off this episode, we're checking in with the heads of the three agencies that are the focus of this episode. It might get a little confusing with so many voices representing several agencies, so I'll help where I can. In this conversation, I'm talking with the U.S. Forest Service, the Natural Areas Conservancy, and the New York City Parks and Recreation Department. Hey, Daptors, I am here with...
1: Marit Larson. I'm the Chief of the Natural Resources Group at New York City Parks. Erica Svensson. I'm a Research Social Scientist with the U.S. Forest Service.
2: And Sarah Charlotte Powers, I'm the co-founder and executive director of the Natural Areas Conservancy.
0: Okay, so I've got a group here, very exciting, but we're going to be juggling a bunch of voices. And so I want to walk my listeners through on why you guys are here together and we're doing an urban forestry episode. But Sarah, I'm going to sort of start with you. Why am I talking to just the three of you right now?
2: I think we're kicking you off in your tour of New York City's natural areas, climate adaptation, um, because the organizations that we represent have a long history of working together with each other. I think setting the stage for a spirit of collaboration that draws on both ecological and social themes and between our organizations, we work with thousands of other organizations across the city and tens of thousands of volunteers. So I think we're here to give you a little bit of context about the landscape of New York City.
0: Okay, so maybe let's take a little bit deeper dive. Your organization is kind of an offspring of this the collaboration between these groups, right?
2: So our organization is a nonprofit. We're born out of a model of public-private partnership that's pretty powerful here in New York City formed dating back to the formation of the Central Park Conservancy there's about 50 institutions here in New York that are nonprofits but that have formal partnership relationships with the city most of those organizations are responsible for providing arts programming public programming educational programming our organization is responsible for conducting science scientific research And then using that information to advance the management of about 20,000 acres of natural areas in the city. So we view ourselves very much as a knowledge broker between the academic world and the world of practice. Um, And so we work very closely with both of these government partners helping to reframe the conversation about what good management of natural areas looks like with an eye towards both making them highly valuable for people to use and providing high quality recreation opportunities. And also thinking increasingly about how to really sustain these places ecologically, both for the benefits that they provide in terms of climate protection, clean air, clean water, But also to support biodiversity locally.
0: Erica. Can you give some context? All right, we just heard a little bit about this collaboration, but what does your organization do? And sort of maybe let's just jump right into how is climate change adaptation making its way with this partnership? What, and again, let's just start with what your organization really does in the city.
1: Absolutely. So I'm a research scientist with the U.S. Forest Service. The Forest Service is a federal agency under the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And we set up shop, so to speak, in New York City many years ago now, working in partnership with the city's Largest public landowner, New York City Parks, and the Forest Service. In a place like New York City, we don't own any land, we don't regulate, but we're here to work in partnership and in collaboration with our partners. Um, We think of New York City, if you will, as this grand social-ecological system, and a lot of the work that we do, the research that we put in play, we do so in in collaboration with practitioners, with land managers. Problems we face, the issues we are engaged in, are so complex. So dynamic, so engaging that they really require multiple entities, multiple voices uh to get the job done. So when we think about New York City and New York City's urban forest, we understand that it's really a co-production or a co-creation of many different stakeholders, of many different actors. And we kind of serve the role as well as being kind of an honest or trusted broker in that mix and engaging with our scientific knowledge, uh, but really also learning from the communities that are are here and and very place-based.
0: And Mark, could you answer the same question as your organization? How does it kind of fit in here?
3: Well, at New York City Parks, our division is responsible for managing the natural areas within the park system. So we have about 12,000 acres of natural area, and those include forests, grasslands, streams, freshwater wetlands, coastal wetlands, and even land underwater, our estuarine edge. And within the urban context we're in some ways really well poised to have to struggle with the issues of adapting to climate change because fundamentally... An urban built environment creates the kind of stressors that can be similar to those that we're are going to experience in climate change. So, flashy runoff from precipitation on the built surfaces into our streams and wetlands, uh, the heat associated with the urban heat islands, all those things are going to get more extreme with climate change. So, as we are tasked with managing our resource, Our partnership with the Natural Areas Conservancy and with the Forest Service, it was particularly strengthened in the realm of assessing what our resource conditions are, so developing protocols to help us be able to measure what conditions are in a quantitative and repeatable way, selecting metrics that are then meaningful for us to be able to use to gauge whether our management actions are effective. And we've had uh, initiatives looking at uh, assessing our forest system that Natural Areas Conservancy in particular has helped with, and we'll be talking about those at at some point uh, later, I think, in more detail, and in particular also across our coastal marsh systems. We've been able to collect information about the baseline conditions of our salt marshes and then already start to use that data to plan for the kinds of actions we need to do to uh, protect our wetlands in the face of rising tidal waters and sea level rise.
0: Erica. So this is an amazing partnership and I, this is something I'm going to have to repeat over and over in this podcast. It's just this collaboration that you guys are really emphasizing here. Oh,
1: we use the word oh wait we use the word share uh, i'm going to i'll use the word shared stewardship
0: this notion of climate adaptation i'm not even quite sure how long this partnership has been around but has there been any sort of new things that have come up because of climate change has it has it made your relationship closer are you doing different things i mean how has climate change really ch- changed this shared stewardship
1: Well, I think any disturbance, acute or chronic, calls into question the need to engage many voices, many different actors, institutions, and stakeholders. You know, as we're facing some some challenges these days in terms of different types of disturbances, certainly Hurricane Sandy had a major impact in the New York region. But even prior to that, you know, we recognized the importance of New York City's urban forests, that one exists first and foremost, and that it's Viable and serving the public in a really, uh, and the ecosystem in a really unique and, and specific way. We kind of entered into the shared stewardship model here at the urban field station because we, it's very practical. Partnerships aren't always the most efficient way to get things done, but they are the most effective way to get things done.
0: Sarah, did you want to kind of add to that?
2: Yeah, I, I'd like to give two specific examples of how We've shifted our focus or built on a foundation to directly address um, climate adaptation. So, yes. in 2018, the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation and the NAC jointly released the first ever forest management framework for New York City. And it lays out a 25 year roadmap for managing over 7,000 acres. And it's unique because it focuses on really bringing ecological function to the forefront in terms of decision-making. So thinking about our natural areas within the urban context as natural systems, prioritizing where to work and focusing those restoration efforts on bolstering what is working well in terms of adaptation. And that has included a variety of different techniques, including local sourcing of plant material, which I think we'll be chatting about later, um, and we've then been able to build on that framework, which has sort of on the back end shifted everything about how we prioritize and and track our work by creating a new tool that actually allows us to select species within ecological communities for restoration based on a series of climate predictions for New York City. So we're looking at hundred year estimates for climate change within New York City, looking at specifically at heat and drought, and we've developed several dozen unique planting palettes that are adapted to both the local ecological conditions of New York City, but also the climate stressors that we anticipate. And together, those sort of package of tools is allowing the restoration work that's done by the Parks Department to specifically anticipate and take a proactive look at changing our city's forests.
0: Samar we have three different agencies here. And my own experience is working with agencies, state, federal, non and nonprofit organizations that they all might have a sort of a different vision of like what a climate impact might be or what sort of modeling you might use. How, how have you gone through it? Do you are you guys all on the same page of these are the impacts and this is how we're going to have to manage it? I mean, you have to get some agreement on even the basic science and not everyone's using the same thing. How's that process unfolded with this stewardship model?
3: Yes, Parks Department and NAC and Forest Service don't have a problem of working with different basic uh, data sets or a different understanding of the impacts. What we do have are different purviews and different uh, skill sets. So in some ways, uh, we're I think particularly complimentary, we might not have we at parks as land managers who have to be very responsive to the public and might be more susceptible to sort of political pressures have the sort of one, sort of our turf that we need to focus on. We benefit from uh, working with a private or nonprofit organization because they have a ability at the Natural Air Conservancy to be more flexible and focus on sort of a, a mission, or as Sarah has been saying, developing tools that can help us with our work. And uh, the really research focus that Erica brings from the Forest Service uh, allows us to be able to, Take the expertise that she and her colleagues bring uh, that we don't aren't able to delve into as land managers. So I think it's primarily complementary in our approach to
1: looking at climate impacts. Yeah, and we, we have a lot of conversations. You know, this whole shared stewardship model requires us to be in communication, to trust each other, to argue from time to time and debate but in a, in a really healthy and productive way. And as you say, to advance something, you know, which is a shared common goal, which are healthy urban forests for nature's sake, but also for people.
2: I mean, one thing I'll, I'll say to that point is that I think um, even in a city,
1: this city where
2: there's a lot of sophistication around a lot of these topics, I think for many New Yorkers, the idea of climate adaptation and resilience is still very narrowly defined as, Coastal protection. And so I think that the the sort of nuance and interdisciplinary approach that includes social resilience and resilience of a whole range of natural ecosystems within the urban context is really adding to that conversation and I think allowing us to get out in front of some issues that we're still we have a little bit little room in terms of time to do some thoughtful planning. I think in some ways we're seeing in some of our national work that thinking about the resilience of natural forested systems within cities is a topic that's just gaining traction in a new way. I think there's been a big focus on street tree planting and heat equity, but I think as we think more about sort of the complexity of managing bigger forest patches within the urban context. I feel really lucky that we're, we've are we given ourselves a little bit of a chance to sort of make an early investment in some of those topics. One other thing we've sort of touched on this, but just to say about the group dynamic is that in some ways I think We've done a lot of work looking at the way cities across the U.S. are approaching the management of urban natural areas, both when we were writing a business plan for this organization. And then last year, we conducted a survey of 125 organizations across over 100 U.S. cities looking at their approach to management of natural areas. And I I think this is a little bit subtle, but in some ways, I think the nature of this collaboration is its own Form of resilience. It's, mm. it's putting a series of otherwise sort of competing interests together in a way that really bolsters the impacts. So just as an example, you know, we worked together last year to develop, or over several years, released last year, this framework. The agency adopted that framework, but then the mayor's office didn't fund it. So then our organization over the past 12 months worked together with a group of park advocacy organizations that have primarily a set of other interests. They're very focused on access to playgrounds and other forms of park amenities to ensure that forest management was included in the park's budget in a sort of expanded way. We just found out that an additional $4 million were added specifically to the budget for next year for this topic. And so I think Thinking about kind of playing to the strengths of our organizations and how we work together within sort of the policy and social climate of our city to ensure that the shared goals that we have of seeing an increased investment and an increased level of commitment to this topic, I think is part of what's working here really uniquely.
1: That is good. I feel like I want to amend something on behalf of the Forest Service with the reason for being. You know, the Forest Service really sees um, the work happening in New York City and in other cities as very innovative because of this partnership framework, because of this collaboration, because of this aspiration for a shared stewardship model. And so we are a federal agency. We touch down in New York City in this kind of lightweight way and use New York City as our laboratory in many ways. But we are place-based but not place-bound. So the lessons and the innovation that we co-create together with our partners here in New York City around the urban forest, we share with other cities and other places and the national forests across the urban-rural gradient, if you will. So it's really very valuable experience for us to work in this collaborative way.
3: Another unique Aspect of collaborating with NAC and the Forest Service for us at Parks, I think, has to do with how big and complex New York City is. So our forests span, in total, not just on parklands, twenty thousand acres in our, our natural areas in twelve different sub watersheds, even within the city. And so the the context in each of those places and parks is quite different. But we're with the tools that we're developing, as with this forest management framework, we can work with. Partners and smaller organizations, and try to replicate the types of approaches we're dealing with locally within New York City, because it's as if really we've got many cities within our purview.
0: What have you done to communicate urban forestry and climate adaptation to the public? That's always a challenge to get people to kind of support urban forests in general, even though people love them. Now you got this new dimension of climate adaptation. Are are there specific programs? What What are you guys doing?
2: I think that's a place where our organization has added a lot of value. We've actually hired PR consultants numerous times to help us work directly with mainstream media to get more attention on this topic. So when we released our forest management framework, it was the cover of the Metro section of the Times the day that it was released. And it was a huge picture of you know, me and one of our colleagues walking through a forest in one of our parks. We've also um, invested in creating a new online web map that for the first time ever shows not just the location of where natural areas exist in the city, but also their condition and the investment that's being made in them. So you can zoom into an individual park and see where trees have been planted. And that includes a layer that shows how climate adaptation planning is is sort of being integrated into both prioritization and the approaches that are being taken on the ground. So we view that communications function as a really critical part of the value we add in this partnership with the Parks Department and the Forest Service.
1: Well, I'll just say that, you know, the urban forest here in New York City provides so many benefits social benefits, ecological benefits. But still, you know, our job as researchers and as social scientists, you know, we've we've come to find that one really will not fully care for, conserve, protect, uh, or uh, nurture things that we don't love and understand. And so my job as a social scientist working with the Parks Department and the Natural Areas Conservancy over the years has been to look at how people uh, care for these natural areas, how they use them, how they see them as a benefit, and that's really important in today's times of adaptation and a changing climate because we need people to care and understand the value and benefit of these places. So we've done the deep dive surveying with parks and the Natural Areas Conservancy, over 10,000 acres of natural areas, asking New Yorkers how they feel about uh, these spaces, looking at how people are using natural areas, and we found some really exciting things.
0: Mart, did you have any contribution to that the communication
1: within the park system? We actually have to do
3: increasing communication within our own sort of management and operations, and that's another way in which we're we're partnering with NAC and with Forest Service. One example for ex- is in our urban lakes and ponds, they're being affected by climate change with increased heat and increased occurrences of things like harmful algae booms. These are really problematic issues that parks has to deal with, that the public complains about. And bringing uh, attention then to the importance of restoring the landscape and our forests uh, and natural areas and protecting our water resources and protecting other elements that are directly connected, but not visibly connected to the public is important to us as well.
0: Mark, what's your favorite New York park and why?
3: My current favorite New York City park is Pelham Bay Park in the Bronx because it's right at that interface between the southern region and the northern New England coastal region and it's got these tremendous rocky outcrops and shorelines that make you think you're somewhere else at the Maine.
0: Sarah, what, what's your favorite park and why?
2: My favorite New York City park is be Cortland Park for two reasons. One is it's right next to where I grew up and it serves as a real reminder to me. I lived and worked out of New York City for about 20 years doing more traditional natural resource management. But my original sort of spark and love for nature was formed in a city park. So I like that sort of connection. It also happens to have these huge towering you know, sort of historic forests that really still embody the
1: historic landscape of New York
2: City.
0: Erica, what's your favorite park?
1: Well, it's very hard for me to answer what is my favorite park because I'm getting older now and there's so many experiences. One of my favorite parks is my neighborhood park, uh, Carroll Park, where I took my children when they were very young and they learned to play and find their way through some of the trees and rocks and grasses. But As I get older, you know, there's other parks and places that serve a different need for me. And right now, I'm really loving parks where I can explore the high canopy and sit and reflect in a quiet place. Just kind of get some meditation or get a handle on my thoughts for the day and feel a cool breeze. So many different places.
0: Before we meet the rest of the New York team, I wanted to check in with Jad Daly, CEO and President of American Forests, to give us some broader context of the importance of urban forest. Hey, adapters, I am back and I'm with Jad Daly, President and CEO of American Forest. Hey, Jad. Uh, good to see you, Doug. Let's just kick this off. What's American Forest all about?
4: Yeah, American Forests is the nation's a first conservation organization founded in 1875. And we like to say we're not just old, but we've learned a few things along the way and, and formed some really powerful partnerships uh, as well. The goal for American forests is to create healthy and resilient forests from cities to wilderness. We're really excited that we'll be talking to you today about urban forests because urban forests have been in the center of our our vision from the very, very beginning. We think the benefits of trees and forests are needed everywhere in America. And really excited that we're at a moment right now where it feels like urban forests are gaining greater traction than ever.
0: Okay, jumping right into that, this is about climate adaptation. And I guess you probably think you guys have been doing this kind of work endlessly anyway, but how does this sort of new focus on climate change enter your work here at American Forest? Absolutely. Well, you know, we like to say that urban forests aren't just scenery, they're
4: critical infrastructure for the health, wealth, and climate response that we need in our cities, and particularly to drive uh, equity uh, in how we think about those, those really important issues and, and outcomes. If you think about climate change risk in cities and across America, the number one greatest source of risk is extreme heat. Extreme heat today kills more people every year than all other kinds of extreme weather combined. Uh, And that's particularly true in cities where people are uniquely vulnerable to extreme heat events. So the Amazing power of trees to cool our cities naturally, particularly in those neighborhoods where, for example, people don't have an air conditioning or live in homes that might be particularly vulnerable to heat events, uh, is a critical opportunity to drive climate adaptation uh, in America, addressing the most uh, significant risk that we that we face from climate change.
0: Has in some ways climate change made your job easier to communicate to the public about the value of urban forests?
4: Absolutely. Climate change is driving the interest that we're seeing in urban forests across America right now. We, in every city where we're working and working with urban forest leaders across the country, uh, we're seeing this new awareness that urban forests can play an essential role in protecting people from climate change, both extreme heat, but also uh, other kinds of issues like uh, air pollution, which is gonna be exacerbated by climate change. Uh, Urban uh, forests have a role to play there too by filtering our urban air of of, of pollution. And kind of everywhere folks turn and they think about the challenges that we face from climate change in cities, they're finding that urban forests have a solution. And so that's driving increased interest in how do we plant more urban forests? How do we do a better job of caring for the urban forests that we have? And what's the public investment that we're going to need to scale up urban forestry to really take advantage of this powerful climate change solution?
0: So I know environmental justice is an important issue that you're bringing to is is your role of CEO to American Forests. And so how do you see urban forest and climate change kind of being brought together at American Forests?
4: When I came to American Forest, there were two issues that I wanted to center our vision and our leadership on. Um, the first was, how do we use forests as a solution for climate change? And the second is, how do we use forests to drive equity in America? And urban forest is one place where those two things intersect powerfully. We like to say hashtag urban forest equals hashtag climate action plus hashtag climate justice. There are few things that we can do that have such a powerful double play impact on slowing climate change, but also protecting people uh, from climate change. And when you think about that climate protection in the context of cities, the parts of our cities that lack tree canopy cover are at greater risk of from climate change, from, from extreme heat due to urban heat islands. The fact that lack of tree canopy cover contributes to an oven-like effect when uh, extreme heat hits pavement and other built materials and starts literally cooking neighborhoods uh, with the urban heat island effect. Creating more tree cover in those tree gap areas, uh, a vision that we call creating tree equity, is a powerful way to make sure that we cool those neighborhoods that are most vulnerable to climate change and particularly to extreme heat. If I show you a tree canopy map of virtually any city in America, I'm also showing you a map of income and in many cases showing you a map of race in ways that transcend income. That tree inequity that we have across our cities right now exacerbates climate inequity. It exacerbates climate injustice. So we put forward a vision of tree equity that we see as a powerful way to use trees to drive climate justice for people, particularly in underserved neighborhoods and communities of color. Let me explain that a little bit more. So the lack of tree canopy cover in a neighborhood helps to create an urban heat island, areas where cities get five to seven degrees hotter during the day, and sometimes as much as 22 degrees hotter at night, which is actually when the worst health impacts kick in. Imagine if you're a low-income person, you're living in a home that's not particularly resilient to heat, doesn't have good ventilation, for example and maybe you don't even have air conditioning. Well, we also know that the low-income people in those neighborhoods often have greater pre-existing health vulnerabilities as well. And now you put the stress of extreme heat days on those kinds of neighborhoods. And all throughout the day, people are facing this uh, stress from heat. But then even at night, there's no opportunity to cool down because urban heat islands keep those neighborhoods hotter all the way through the evening. And that's what creates day after day the greatest uh, health stress from heat and ultimately kills the most people during heat waves. So if we can create tree equity, if we can bring the power of tree cover to cool those neighborhoods that are most vulnerable, where people have these underlying vulnerabilities to things like extreme heat, we can help to address climate adaptation, to drive climate adaptation for the people who need it the most. But I think it's it's really important to note that this is a moment where city leaders and policymakers across the country and citizens are all looking for Things that we can do that will protect us from climate change, but will also slow climate change, that will take away the underlying problem. Urban forests are uniquely powerful in this regard. They cool our neighborhoods. In fact, we did one study in Dallas that found that fully implementing urban forests along with using cooling surfaces could reduce mortality by 22%. So we know urban forests are are a powerfully effective way to protect people from climate change. But here's the part that most people don't know urban forests capture almost 20% of the carbon emissions that are absorbed in our forests here in the U.S. every single year. Let me repeat that. 20% of the carbon captured in U.S. forests every single year is actually being captured in urban forests. So a critical component of our U.S. forest carbon sink is actually trees in cities. And so creating more trees in cities and creating healthier trees in cities is going to play an important role in reducing carbon emissions through the power of sequestration. But there's an even greater benefit of urban forests to slow climate change, which is their role in cooling our cities and reducing energy use. 5 to 10% of all the energy use in cities during these peak hot weather periods is is because of urban heat islands. It's because of that unnatural heating effect that I spoke of uh, earlier. Research from the U.S. Forest Service has found that our trees in cities already today reduce energy use by 7.2%. If we create more urban forests and more robust urban forests, they can help us tackle that extra energy use associated with urban heat islands, and they can drive even greater energy savings and therefore even greater carbon emissions reductions.
0: What can you tell me about American Forest and how is New York City a role model in this area of urban forestry and climate adaptation? And what are your experiences in your relationship with New York? Well, first, we hope that American Forest vision for tree equity is
4: not only guiding for our work, but is helping to provide a North Star for the urban forest movement. To make sure that when we're investing in urban forests, we're doing it in these tree gap areas where the absence of tree canopy is having the greatest impact on people, particularly on vulnerable populations that face issues that I discussed before, like pre-existing health conditions and uh, and lack of of air conditioning.
0: How's this integrating with your work in New York City?
4: Our goal for New York City and every city around the country is for American forests to provide resources and and leadership that help them be more successful uh, in urban forestry. In in addition to the public funding that we're helping to bring uh, from federal and state sources for efforts like the great urban forestry leadership uh, in New York, we're also creating a home for those resources on the internet. Uh, So we partnered with the U.S. Forest Service to create something called the Vibrant Cities Lab to make sure that all the best resources on urban forestry around the country, things like forestry guidance for the right tree in the right place and other kinds of technical tools are available uh, for folks to use on a a do-it-yourself basis. So we're forming direct partnerships with city leaders to create urban forestry programs, but we also want to create a base of resources that can be used by people all across the country, even folks we've never met.
0: Now let's go back and chat with Sarah Charlotte Powers of the Natural Areas Conservancy in New York. I'm back with Sarah and I wanted to just follow up and talk about the Forest Management Framework for New York City. And I'm holding a copy of it right now. But Sarah, could you kind of briefly describe this is a sort of a, an important document for the city? What's it all about?
2: Sure. So the document is really important. It shifts the way that the Parks Department approaches its management of natural areas from a binary of restored or unrestored to a systems management approach. In the Million Trees Program, which was the signature tree planting program that took place for almost a decade from 2007 to um, 2017, half of those trees were planted in natural areas, but they only impacted a few hundred of the more than 7,000 acres under the agency's jurisdiction this framework shifts from that approach to really thinking about how do we manage the entire system which involves a different set of techniques it's really thinking less about where can we put more trees in the ground and thinking how do we help the natural processes that cause trees to grow from seeds that fall off trees to take hold and continue to thrive in this you know deeply sort of stressful urban environment as Our approach to putting together this framework was to create an ecological model that mapped the condition of all of these acres that was based on a very intensive research um, effort that we conducted, and then the creation of a financial model, which is based on 30 years of investment information from the Parks Department. When we were putting that plan together, we reached out to cities across the U.S. to better understand how they were approaching this topic. And we found a surprising lack of information, both in the published literature and and gray literature about the way that specifically natural areas are being managed within the urban context or in 2018 we conducted a survey of 110 US cities looking at their approach to management of the urban forest and we found some real similarity between how people are working and also these emerging areas of interest including climate change so there was an overwhelming interest in Including climate adaptation into management practices, but also a big gap between that interest and the number of cities actually doing that work. So we saw over 80% of cities listed climate change as a top concern, but only about 25% were actively approaching climate adaptation in their work. So we're now moving our attention to thinking about how as a national community of practice, can we start to beef up the way that we're approaching these topics and work together more collaboratively?
0: It's a 25-year timeframe for the Mm -hmm. forest management. And when you think about climate change, We're talking 2050, 2080. How did you decide on 25 years? And does that sort of hamper you when you you think about climate change in a broader way?
2: Um, You know, I think... Forest management in an urban context is a forever exercise. So we needed to put a time horizon on it for political and administrative purposes, and we wanted to set a timeline that allowed us to map out a piece of work that we felt was sustainable, but in some ways I think... The the work we're doing now and the work we'll be doing 100 years from now are all part of this sort of lifetime trajectory of what it takes to really
5: manage natural resources in a changing
0: world. Hey, Adopters, we are back and I am with...
5: I'm Christy King. I'm the Director of Natural Areas Restoration and Management for New York City Parks.
0: Okay, so let's just jump into this. How do forests add to the overall resilience of New York City?
5: I think forests are just one piece of highly functional urban green space. They are an important component of an overall resiliency program for New York City. Here in New York, in our parkland, there are over 7,300 acres of forested natural space, which is surprising to people. And it's a lot of space, you know, so you can imagine that if these forests are well supported and healthy, that they provide so much to New York City and its residents, both in terms of ecological benefits and social benefits, like a nature experience.
0: We talked a little bit about this in a previous conversation, but what really, like the, the social benefits of a force, how does that impact resilience?
5: Right. I mean, I think that's a tough question to answer, and I'm certainly not a social scientist, but I would argue that... If people feel connected to natural systems or living things in general, that that might make them feel more empowered to understand nature and take other actions that may mitigate the long term effects of climate change on their personal lives.
0: We had sort of an overall definition of the forest management framework, right. but how does it sort of relevant to your work? How does it affect your day job? How are you using it?
5: Oh, man. Yeah. Implementing the forest management framework, we're really in it right now. I'm a very nuts and bolts kind of person, uh, very involved in the technical details. And while I was part of creating the framework and bringing our 30 years of forest management experience at New York City Parks to what the Natural Areas Conservancy brought in terms of their ecological assessment of our forest We worked together to create it, but now the implementation feels like my job, getting my team of about 20 folks working in forests across New York City to use the tools that were created for us and to better understand the impacts of the work that they're doing, the long-term changes that they're seeing as a result of our projects, and then choosing the right spots. So I'd say the main things that we're doing differently are in site selection. We are choosing our project areas based on the framework in that we're looking at areas of forests that are maybe already healthy, maybe with mature native canopy that are, because those spaces are already providing the greatest benefits. To New Yorkers, and then we're working to reduce those threats and to make sure the next generation of trees is in place and that regeneration is possible. So our work to, you know, in short, remove invasive species, remove debris, manage trails, protect against deer herbivory. We're targeting places now that are a bit different than where we've worked in the past, and are we think. Maybe a lower level of intervention will result in a greater benefit and a larger number of acres improved as a result of our work.
0: So I did a little research on you, and I came across an interview that you did. And I'm going to read a quote here, and I want you to just sort of elaborate on what you're saying here. I think I gained a real and scary understanding of the range of impacts of climate change and sea level rise on our urban forests. And I'm always thinking and planning now with that in mind. I I love that quote because, you know, it's driving your day job.
5: Yeah, yeah, it really is. I think Hurricane Sandy was no joke for us. And it definitely changed the way we think about our work. And how our forests are going to continue to change in the future. Most immediately through increased storms and large canopy gaps opening in forested natural areas. In urban areas, canopy gaps are actually a problem. Um, we have so much invasive species pressure that when a large canopy gap opens, it's an opportunity for the invasive species to gain a foothold, not necessarily the native, you know, forest processes that are expected in a canopy gap. So we're very attuned to that now and are, it's like, you know, like rapid strike almost, uh, being very vigilant when canopy gaps open up. And again, making sure that next generation of native species is there to take its place. And then the other thing I'd say is New York City is a coastal city, and while we have a lot of upland forest, we're very close to the shore in a lot of places. And the influences of salt spray and just, you know, ocean flooding, beach flooding are very interesting, and that's something that we're thinking more about, like planting salt salt tolerant species in places that may have greater saltwater inundation in the future, and kind of thinking about how our forest communities will change over time, how the assemblages of species that are there now might not be the ones that are there in the future. And, you know, just being forward thinking and not necessarily facilitating that or bringing in species that wouldn't be there anyway, but augmenting our plantings with maybe some more salt-tolerant plants that are also appropriate to the area.
0: Okay, I want to dig into that. that was my, you, prompt, you, you already preempted what I was going to ask you, is that <laughs> you think of climate change and sort of you're involved with restoration of urban forest here in New York, but what is the definition of a, a native plant 20 years from now, 40 years from now, do you have a process in place To allow it's not natural succession, but in its own way, this Frankenstein natural succession. (laughs) Do you have maps that say, well, you know, cities have, I mean, this um, invasive species has come in, let's go get rid of it. There's, you know, a team to go, what are you going to do in that situation? How do you go between discouraging and encouraging what naturally is going to happen?
5: Right. Oh my gosh, it's so hard. Um, And you know, the novel ecosystems discussion is a ripe one. And I do understand that invasive species are thriving for a reason. Reason And they're, you know, generalists and successful and especially in our impacted environment. But again, it gets to site selection. Like, for example, I'd say that a forest site that's growing on an old concrete fill dump and is currently covered in 100 percent non-native invasive species, it's going to be really tricky to restore. And um, finding an appropriate target plant community for that space is really difficult. And those aren't the types of projects we're prioritizing right now because the lift is too high. So again, we're working in places where some native species are thriving and we can kind of detect what type of community assemblage should or maybe was there in the past. And we do have tools for this. We have remotely sensed ecological communities, kind of wall to wall in our parkland. So um, we can reference that map before going out in the field. And then once we're on the ground, we have a dichotomous key to work through, you know, what are you seeing in the canopy? Is it mostly oak or sweet gum? Okay, move to the next step. What are you seeing in the midstory? Is it blueberry or is it dogwood? Move to the next step. And then when we get to the end, we have a sense of what is there in terms of intact communities of native species. We believe that restoring assemblages of native plants that have evolved together as a group is a resilient strategy or is an adaptation strategy to increase resilience. You know, those plants have been they evolve together. And while the balance might have tipped in favor of something else in the specific New York City site, we want to bring those plants back together. And we do kind of assume, and, and the literature points to this too, that together those plants can be more resilient to future invasion and disturbance.
0: You're doing a lot of research. This kind of gets a bit technical, but how do you kind of bring the public into what you're doing here? And make them understand of all these these complex things that you're doing.
5: Yeah, you know, engaging the public in our forested natural areas in New York is so cool. <laughs> I think it's very rare that people know that these places exist at all, let alone that they're public parkland, that they're available to them for enjoyment, and that they're safe and welcoming. Um, so we do a number of things. We do stewardship. Of events to actually directly engage in the management activities. People plant trees, you know, it's a really kind of um, low barrier to entry. It's really rewarding. I planted 40 trees today. That's really cool for people. But now we're doing a lot of work with trail management. There are over 350 miles of trails and kind of social paths in our parks. And we're working to formalize mark and blaze those trails with clear signage and wayfinding, and then work in conjunction with our urban park rangers to lead hikes and walks and really, again, show the public that these places are theirs. You know, this is public land. It's underutilized parkland, I would argue. Um, Many of our active use recreation areas are heavily used, very crowded in New York City. And, you know, spanning people through the passive recreation spaces, I think is one just really exciting and novel for them, but also can expose them to a different type of nature experience than maybe the tree in front of their house or the garden down the block.
0: What's your favorite New York park?
5: My favorite New York City park is Pelham Bay Park in the Bronx. It is The closest we have to like a rocky New England shoreline, but there's also swamp forest, incredible mature sweet gum, tulip poplar, oak, and there's a public beach there, Orchard Beach, that's like was built by Robert Moses and is a really cool, like just piece of history in New York City. But then weave throughout that are salt marshes, forests, nature trails, and a full range of experience for everyone.
0: We are back, and I'm with
6: Clara Pregitzer from the Natural Areas Conservancy.
0: Okay, so what do you do with them?
6: I am a conservation scientist, and I'm trained as a forest ecologist, and I also split my time. I'm a PhD candidate at Yale School of Forestry as well. That's pretty busy. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. So I want to jump in here and tell me about this national survey findings with a focus on climate change related topics.
6: Yeah, sure. So when we were developing our forest management framework for New York City, One of the things we were really interested in um, learning more about is how other cities were managing forested natural areas. So we started digging around and found that there wasn't really any national information about how cities were approaching forested natural area management. And so... We became sort of fixated on this and we decided to do a survey. So it's a two part project. We did a survey to ask cities sort of how they were managing forested natural areas, why they were managing these places and the data that they were using to inform their decision making. And. Um, We heard from 125 different organizations across the U.S. and 111 cities in 40 states. So we were really impressed by the turnout. This fall, we will be bringing 12 of those cities here to New York to dig in a little bit more on some of the findings. Climate-related, I would say we found that um, less than half of the cities had climate projection data that they were using to inform their decision-making. And so although I think 68% said climate change was a really important factor And challenge in their decision making, they might not have the tools or the information to really apply sort of science based decision making. And so I think there's a real opportunity to potentially think a little bit more about how climate change impacts are happening specifically in cities. And so there's all of these other sort of co occurring stressors that are happening in cities invasive species fragmentation increased frequency of storms and weather events. And so cities are really interested in trying to figure out how to manage forests for these the changing climate. But I think a lot of the data that's available is really regional or statewide. And specifically for forest doesn't really touch down on a lot of these forested natural areas. And that's really what we found in New York City, too. We started looking at data on how forests were changing in general and really found that cities in general across the nation just don't have common forms of data. So really simple things like where these places are, how many acres of natural areas there are in cities, there aren't a lot of common measures for that. So there's data like tree canopy maps, but that doesn't really get at sort of the forest type or the quality or the condition of forests in cities. And so a lot of that is really critical to know, to understand how these places are changing and how to manage them for the future. Another finding that we found was that less than half of, there's a lot of measures. So understanding how forests are changing over time is critical to understanding how climate change impacts might be influencing forests so understanding some of those trajectories and change over time there um, just about half of cities had information on how their forests were changing over time so measures like biodiversity forest structure and composition invasive species just about half of the cities that we heard from in the survey had those data and so I think that's really great that half of them do but it also sort of opens the door to say like well why don't all of them have some of that information? Or why don't more than half have that? And how can we begin to close some of these gaps that might be just analytical gaps? So some of the cities said they had these data, but they weren't really able to apply them for decision making. But then other cities just didn't have that information. And so... Uh, in the convening that we're hosting in the fall of uh, 2019, we will start to dig into some of those questions a little bit more about what are the knowledge gaps, what are the analytical gaps, what are the application gaps for data And climate change will be a focus of that convening. And so we're working with uh, Northern Institute of Applied Climate Science to come and talk a little bit about adaptation strategies for management. And I think a lot of cities are already exploring with this. And and even invasive species management is related to climate change. And 90% of our survey respondents said they do invasive species management.
0: Is there a particular city that is doing really great work besides New York City?
6: Yeah. So we've been interviewing the cities that are going to be attending or convening. And because they're geographically distributed across the U.S., there's different climate challenges, so... We've been talking to Miami, for example, and they have, it was really interesting to talk to them because they're dealing both with biodiversity loss and fragmentation. So area, the area that they work in is really biologically rich. But then there's also these forest types, the mangrove forests that are are not biologically rich, but protect from sea level rise. They're sort of balancing and prioritizing between different climate stressors and how to manage forests and different types of forests to adapt or meet those management challenges. And then And I know Seattle is doing really innovative work and starting to trial some management strategies to make their forests adapt to climate change.
0: Okay, last question. What's your favorite park and why?
6: My favorite park in New York City is Van Cortlandt Park in the Bronx. And I think that's because my first job as a forester for New York City was stationed in that park. And so I'm from a rural area from northern Michigan. And I came here to New York City and just wasn't convinced there was forest here. And I spent the summer in that park and I saw a great horned owl, a lot of native species, and just sort of felt more at home in that park.
0: Hey, adapters, we are back, and we are in the forest, and I'm with Justin Bowers.
7: I am a project manager with the Natural Areas Conservancy in New York City. Okay, so where are we? We are right now in the Northwoods section of Central Park in Manhattan.
0: This looks like a pretty big plot of forest, and yet people are probably hearing different sounds in the background, so to kind of maybe describe the whole area...
7: Sure. Well, Central Park is uh, just over 800 acres. Uh, The North Woods are a small component of that at the north end of the park, just adjacent to Harlem. But we are, uh, although we're in the woods, uh, surrounded by the city and uh, major roads are just a quarter of a mile away from us.
0: I was told about these pallets, these climate adaptation pallets that you guys are working with, get a lot more background on that.
7: Sure, certainly. So I'll say first that... um, the forestry, depart- the forestry restoration team at New York City Parks has already a really robust system for choosing what they plant in restoration sites in place, but we've been working for the past two years on Grant to um, adjust planting pallets for urban forest restoration sites to focus more on planting species that are predicted to be resilient to future climate conditions.
0: And what would be some sort of the species, Are like are you focusing on just several, I mean how, how diverse does
7: it get? It's quite diverse. Uh, so we had a few different uh, sort of base data sources that we used to get this project going. One of them was an ecological assessment that was one of the Natural Area Conservancy's first major programs. Um, this was a program where we conducted research in over 1,200 10-meter plots throughout all the natural areas in New York City's uh, parks and collected data about species composition, species abundance, what species are present in the overstory, the midstory, the understory, what kind of woody debris or leaf litter was present, what kind of soil characteristics. So we put together a really massive and complete data set uh, to give a better idea of what was present in New York City's forests. And so that was one of the things that we were able to draw on for this work. That work was then using the data from the ecological assessment. We worked with the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. They have a group called the New York Natural Heritage Program. They looked at that data and using the species data and abundant and abundance data mapped all of those plots to individual ecological community types based on the National Vegetation Index, which is a product of the USDA. And so when designing the pallets for future use, what we did was say that we will identify, based on our EA data and this, these community types, we'll identify individual community types at a restoration site and base the planting pallets that we develop on those communities so that we're planting towards an existing ecological community, which gives sort of a base of kind of uh, robustness right there. Uh, The other thing that we used as our data source was the U.S. Forest Service Climate Change Tree Atlas, which is a free data set available online and is comprised of over 100 tree species that have modeling data partially based on climate change models and trees predicted response to that and partially based on trees response to various disturbance factors uh, like increased drought, increased heat, uh, more prevalence of disease and invasive species. And so all the data on climate response and the data on response to disturbance is combined and results in a, a score for individual species. So we used that data to score species that we're putting in our pallets. So in the end, we have a series of planting pallets that are based on existing ecological communities comprised of species that are native to New York City and then organized based on their predicted resilience to future climate change.
0: Um, in the in <laughs> back, gosh. we're no, but no. Here we, we are, New York City. You can hear in the background. There seems like a lot of information to inform management decisions, but there's all mm-hmm. this parkland in New York. Mm-hmm. Realistically, are you taking that information and through the funding and the ability to do what those assessments are telling you? Are how much progress are you making? Is it just a park by park basis? We're making great progress. We're
7: very fortunate uh, as an organization to be a public private partnership with the New York City Parks Department. So the forestry restoration team in New York City Parks worked with us while we were developing these new pallets, and they, as the single largest restoration practitioner in the city, agreed to adapt our recommendations. So moving forward, all the restoration projects that the forestry restoration team works on will incorporate these pallets into them. The, I think probably the sing- a challenging aspect of that is that not all native species propagate Easily uh, in a nursery setting. So, there down the line, I would imagine, could be some sourcing issues. But we also have the advantage of the Greenbelt Native Plant Center, that is a New York City Parks nursery that propagates native plants on Staten Island and collects seeds from native species and and genealogically native species throughout the city to propagate and then resell. Okay, so what is this FIRST tool that I'm hearing about? Uh, So FIRST stands for Forest Identification and Restoration Selection Tool, uh, and it's something that we built as part of our project to develop planting pallets. And what it is, is basically a selection tool that you can use in the early stages of planning your restoration. So ideally, you would be in the site that you're planning to restore or have collected data on the species present in that site. And what you do is you run through this tool, which is a dichotomous key. Uh, It's a selection of A-B choices starting from very broad choices, like are you working in a terrestrial area or a wetland plustrine area, and then becoming gradually more specific. Are you in a native forest or a successional forest? Are you dealing with deciduous species mainly or evergreen species? Then it gets into specific species, and then it gets in a little bit to specific assemblages and dominant species. And in the end, what it arrives at is identifying the kind of forest community that you've got around you. And that's, again, data that came from our ecological assessment. The next step there is it then leads you to a planting palette based on our grant uh, that is comprised of native species that are predicted to be resilient to climate change that you could plant in the site that you're standing in.
0: Okay, I'm going to use that, but also if you're on the bus and you're talking to someone, they say, what is this first thing all about? Yeah. You got 20, 30 seconds. How do you describe it? It is a tool for identifying
7: the kind of forest community that you are either looking at or planning to do work in and then choosing a palette of trees and shrubs to plant there for restoration purposes.
0: That's pretty good. good. Okay. (laughs) Question I'm asking everyone, what's your favorite park and why? My favorite park and why? Can I give more than one answer? No. No. Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh,
7: My favorite park in the city is Inwood Hill Park, which is at the very northern tip of Manhattan. Uh, It has a 133-acre natural area. It has some of the oldest forest in the city with a really beautiful grove of uh, tulip poplar and mature oak. Uh, that's really beautiful. And it has the Hudson River on the west side of it, the Harlem River on the north side of it. It's got uh, some great natural history. There are Native American caves there. There was a Revolutionary War fort there. Um, And it's just a beautiful
0: place. I hope you enjoyed that visit to Central Park. Now let's check in with Dr. Erica Zvenson of the U.S. Forest Service. Okay, Erica, so what are the social benefits of natural areas?
1: Well, natural areas are are really unique and special in many ways, but I'd say one of the main benefits really is it provides a sense of a refuge for people, Over and over again, we found that New Yorkers, visitors to the city, engage with these areas to seek some peace and relaxation, to engage in nature, recreation, if you will. And it's really important. We see evidence of that in the informal trails that we see or impromptu sitting areas in these natural areas. Sometimes we find sculptures or shrines or even memorials. Um, Through our our research with the Natural Areas Conservancy, we found that 70 percent uh, visitors to the natural areas do so every week, and that's really important. And when you think about this kind of everyday landscape, everyday nature, what it's providing for people, twenty percent of folks that we've spoken to in, in New York City natural areas go nowhere else to seek nature, and that's really important as well for us to think
0: about. A, a growing part of the climate change movement is sort of climate psychology, how people are dealing with the sort of dramatic effects of climate change. I would. Anticipate sort of these social benefits associated with urban forests are going to play a role for, you know, the public in the years ahead, you know, as as things become we head on this roller coaster. And I'm assuming that's kind of playing into your sort of long term uh, planning.
1: Right. Well, the natural areas, in addition to providing this refuge or kind of this uh, everyday landscape or everyday nature for people to engage and relax, they're, they're also social places. I mean, they're not so remote that you don't see anyone walking along the trail. You're acknowledging other people, you're engaging and you're seeing people as well. Sometimes in a quieter place, space, obviously, not like on the basketball court or the baseball field. And, and in this context and in this way, we, we find there's a real camaraderie and a real sense of community that comes out of these natural areas that you wouldn't really expect. And in that, they, they become places of our you know, social infrastructure, and they create social cohesion and trust that is really important, I think, to deal with some of the challenges we may face in the future. We find, though, that when groups are engaged in stewarding these natural areas, when they're actually getting in there, planting trees, maybe tearing down vines, that they have a greater sense of not only the importance of nature, but they get to know their neighbors. And when we've tracked some of these folks six months later, we found that they've become more engaged in their community at large. they become more civically engaged. Just engaging and understanding their nat- natural areas has become this kind of gateway to understanding community. And they've become more active in all sorts of different things. It's given them the confidence to be part of their city once again.
0: Hey, Adapters, we're back, and I am with...
8: Sarah Anderson. I'm American Forest Senior Manager of Tree Equity. Tell me about this Tree Equity program. Sure. So Tree Equity is really calling for increasing tree canopy cover in communities that need it most. Um, So historically, planning and development practices in the United States have been discriminatory, um, actually by law, legally discriminatory. And so what you see is a trend where there are less trees in communities that tend to have high proportions of renters, low-income people, and communities of color. And you see more tree cover in wealthier and whiter communities. So, you know, we know that trees... And the benefits of trees, really, economic benefits, health benefits, the benefits that trees provide to help manage our stormwater and reduce air pollution, they should be distributed equitably to everyone. And so we, through our Tree Equity Initiative, are coming up with strategies, partnering with cities across the country to effectively restore health, wealth, and um, adequate climate response in the communities that need it most.
0: Okay. On that note, cities need to be more resilient across the board. And the word resilient is becoming very popular in climate change circles. And so how is this program kind of feeding into that process?
8: We at American Forest believe that resiliency, true resiliency, also you know, encompasses folks' ability to be able to be self-sustaining. And so there happens to be a massive shortage right now of urban forestry practitioners in the field. As most of America is urbanized about of Americans live in urban areas. We need to be able to manage the tree canopy and um, nature in those areas. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics tells us that we'll need about 30,000 people in the field over the next five years. And so we're working with private tree care companies, public um, municipalities, forestry departments, statewide forestry departments, to help equip the next generation of urban forestry professionals. And we think that where the trees are needed most, there's also, there's a lot of overlap often with high unemployment um, numbers. So we think that restoring tree equity is is a massive opportunity, not just for Ensuring that lower income communities of color that have historically been discriminated against and left out of, um, receiving the benefits of, of nature near them. Not only making sure that they get those benefits, but that they're, they're able to pocket those benefits and reinvest in their own communities and their own, you know, potential entrepreneurial ventures and what have you. So, you know, we're really investing in the, in vibrant, vibrant cities. And, you know, that's, There's lots of resources on how to do that on our Vibrant Cities Lab website as well.
0: Okay. So you're only one person, and I'm sure there's a lot of cities out there that would love to do something like this. Is there a process? Is there a packaged way that people can kind of do what you're doing with some of these other cities? What, What would you recommend to them?
8: For communities who are interested in helping restore tree equity through building career pathways where they are, they can follow our brand new Career Pathways Toolkit, which has been launched on our Vibrant Cities Lab website. And so we're thrilled to be able to help build the capacity of urban forestry practitioners to not just address these systemic inequities through better community engagement, uh, protocols, but also through Making sure that their workforces themselves are made up of community representatives, right? and and that they're inclusive and responsive to community priorities.
0: Okay, and so they can just go to American Forest website and this program will be just pretty easy to find.
8: Absolutely. Yeah. you can go to American Forest website and check out our work on tree equity, and you'll be able to find the toolkit there.
0: Hey, adapters, We are back in I'm with.
9: Michelle Johnson, a research ecologist with the Forest Service.
0: Tell me how you're related to all this. We're doing urban forestry here in New York City. We're talking about climate adaptation. What are the things that you're doing?
9: Uh, Sure. I work for the New York City Urban Field Station, and I have a couple of research projects where climate change has started throughout. One is looking at responses after Sandy in terms of housing and land use opportunities for green space responses, both in New York City and on Long Island through a series of case studies. And then also uh, worked on a project looking at responses with trees after saltwater flooding from Sandy, thinking about responses and species specific kind of reactions to being inundated with saltwater. Another project is a larger project around environmental stu- stewardship called STUMAP, and that's thinking about how are civic groups working on taking care of the local environment in New York City. And one aspect increasingly is a focus on climate change, so we've added questions to the survey around climate change and are looking at how our group's engaging in responding to flooding, other extreme events, thinking about adapting to conditions as they change.
0: Uh, I'd like to follow up on that. Is you're kind of doing the survey related to the climate questions, how how are people responding to that? Do they kind of sense the the, the broader picture here, what adaptation is? How does that work?
9: Yeah, well, we asked a question. It's a quantitative question, so it's basically a Likert scale, 1 to 7. Do you strongly agree this event affects your work or strongly disagree and climate change and extreme weather came out as some of the top across the board for groups in terms of they it was really influencing their work currently. And I think that's a shift. We did this survey in in two thousand seven when we it was pre Sandy, so we're thinking a little bit less about climate change. Obviously, the conversations changed globally, but having that that dramatic of a response other than neighborhood development, those were the the largest. Kind of factors that were affecting groups work from the set we asked that that really seems to imply that that groups are having to to wrestle with this and we've done some interviews as follow-ups to the survey with with groups and really found that certain groups in areas that were um strongly affected by cnd have have been on the ground responders and have been thinking about going forward about planning for their communities and in, in in collaboration with uh the city
0: Okay, so there's this whole notion of social and ecological integration. What is that?
9: There's I guess a couple different ways to look at it. One is thinking about it from a research perspective. So, I work as a researcher. I'm thinking about how can we bring together and do a more interdisciplinary approach to research. Often traditionally, you know, we've worked in silos where social scientists work with social scientists, ecologists work with ecologists and as we're increasingly understanding how interconnected everything is, we're, we're shifting to try to have more integrated theories of social-ecological systems in cities and thinking about how the social is pushing on the environmental, how the environmental is pushing on the social. And so as a researcher, my role is to think about how to push forward social-ecological theory and then how to think about how we can integrate data sets together to start answering questions around how is the system working in a social-ecological way. That's kind of from a research perspective. Also, you can think about as we're making policy or or thinking about decision making. That increasingly, with the rise of sustainability and resilience, we're starting to think about not just ecological sustainability or ecological resilience, but also social resilience, social sustainability, economic sustainability, and how to manage and consider the trade offs between these um, from a decision making standpoint is also something where the social and the ecological are starting to be integrated.
0: That's all very complicated in in a lot of ways, but how does that sort of manifest itself that you are just at a park? How does that kind of research, that kind of work that you're doing, you're on the ground and what does it really mean for an urban forest?
9: Um, Well, let's think about how you might want to manage uh, a forest. And so I, I, I approach it more as a researcher than a manager but we know that managers are interested in what's the best way to you know manage this forest both from an ecological benefit perspective but also from how people are using those parks and so there are right now often i'd say like it's it's difficult to put those things together if we know that that this is ecologically valuable are people using it? Well, we might not know or we might not understand all the relationships between the ecological health of the place as well as the the social use and social meaning of the place. And so we had a project a few years ago where we worked with the National Areas Conservancy and New York City Parks to engage both in a social assessment of how people are using parks, the meaning they, they give to these places, and then also an ecological assessment looking at the structure, the composition, and the condition of the forest, as well as wetlands and salt, salt marshes. And we've kind of tried to look at how do we pull those data sets together and think about what is what are these relationships, and we found they're really tricky, um, which is not surprising. They're, the, the data are, there, you know, there's a lot of relationships going on there, and it's led us to start asking newer, more detailed questions and analyze, start coming up with new questions and ways of analyzing, collecting new data to, to really try to think through this question of how can we be both managing places for the ecological benefit and for the social benefit, considering there are a lot of people that live here in New York City, and yet at the same time, they are valuable for us from an ecological perspective here
0: people place a certain value an ecosystem service is you know evaluation and you please correct my definition uh, of an urban forest has a lot of different value and you can actually put a dollar value in some ways as you move forward with climate change, you think of these urban forests 20 years 30 years, 50 years they might have even more value than we can even begin to comprehend and talk about some of these social and ecological reasons. Uh, oh could you just kind of make maybe make some predictions and just what they're, they're, I can only guess their value is only going to increase.
9: That's a kind of a a complicated thing to answer. The the ecosystem services kind of approach to thinking about what are the services that ecosystems provide to people and how does that relate to human health and well-being. Right now, what happens is there are certain services that are easy to measure and there's others that are challenging. And so what happens when we value them both from a a relative value like is this more important than than something else or converting things into a monetary valuation so that we can actually put them on kind of a equal playing field compare apples to apples in both cases if you if you don't have the ability to measure an ecosystem service it doesn't get it doesn't currently enter into the equation it doesn't get valued in the decision making and so that's a a tricky thing in that how to think about making decisions about a place that, that has a value if you're not considering all of its values. So there are some methods that are being developed right now in, in thinking about how can we understand more the suite of values people might hold about place and what what are those. And, and so they're not so much uh, going to be, let's do a, a monetary valuation of the services, but rather have a discussion with a set of stakeholders or with the public about what does this place mean to you? Here's some services it provides. Are there other things that's valuable at doing as well, such as providing um, cultural ecosystem services, like the ability to go out and be in solitude and experience nature, things like spiritual values, or being able to socialize with you friends outdoors rather than just in your apartment so there's there's a lot of values there that are challenging to um, put a dollar value on and yet they're actually some of the most critical ones in terms of if we think the urban forests are surrounded by a lot of people and who's using the forest and who's experiencing the forests as our cities grow there's going to be more demands put on those places and those social values are going to become um, even more critical
0: What's your favorite park and why?
9: I have two favorite parks. (laughs) My favorite park near where I live is Astoria Park, but it is a landscape park. It doesn't have a natural forest, so it doesn't have that kind of nature experience. But it's where I go every day, and that's why I love it. other favorite park in New York City is Inwood Hill Park because you can be in the forest in the city, and I love that.
0: Adapters, we are back, and I am with.
10: Hi, my name is Lauren Smalls-Monte. I'm the Heat Resilience Coordinator for the Cool Neighborhoods NYC Initiative in New York City.
0: Tell me about this Cool Neighborhoods program.
10: So, the Cool Neighborhoods program really was birthed out of the One NYC Plan initiative, mainly the resiliency portion. And what makes the Cool Neighborhoods initiative so special is that it was it's a multi agency initiative. So they formed the, the Cool Neighborhoods NYC initiative to address some of those issues, especially the heat vulnerable populations in the city.
0: We haven't really dug into it yet. What really is the heat issue in a place like New York City? What does that mean in context of climate change? And I mean, it sounds obvious, but tell us why you have to worry about it.
10: Extreme heat stress is one of the leading causes of weather-related deaths in the entire U.S. in general. So in New York City, every year we have about 450 emergency visit, heat-related visits, and to that, about 115 heat-related deaths. So it is a pretty big issue in New York City, but it hasn't garnered a lot of attention. So we're hoping to address that issue.
0: About 10, 15 years ago, Paris had a massive heat wave, and I think upwards of 15,000 people died. Did, this, did New York City look at that event and kind of learn from that?
10: At that time, we didn't have this effort or initiative created, but um, the New York City agencies were well aware of that. And we have taken some lessons learned from the Paris or other incidents um, around the world and tried to formulate it in, into our adaptation and mitigation strategies that we have for the Cool Neighborhoods Program. Different from other programs, it's a comprehensive program where it has both the adaptation and mitigation side adaptation, meaning the social programs that are involved in the Be A Buddy system, where we try to partner people with either home health aides or, other, or se- our seniors with um, other people during heat-related events. T- so they can have someone who can check on them, make sure they're okay. And our mitigation measures, which includes the planting of the trees and looking at the effects of trees or vegetation on heat.
0: I'm curious if this comes up quite a bit, but in in regards to environmental justice and equity and climate justice, the urban – Forest is this sort of a strategy to try to address those larger issues? Is and this cool neighborhoods program seems like an, an example. Is that part of those conversations?
10: Yes, it's it's one of the main focus actually of some of the cool neighborhood strategies. In a couple years ago, the Department of Health developed a heat vulnerability index, and this is um, you can see that there's spatial differences throughout the different neighborhoods in New York City. So a lot of the measures that are taken through the programs such as the block street tree, tree planting or the creation of the social programs such as Be a Buddy and Home Health Aids, are targeted in those heat-vulnerable neighborhoods where the people are at risk. The heat-vulnerable index uses uh, four metrics to determine the vulnerability of the people in the neighborhood and includes environmental and social factors in that metric. If
0: I had a guess that there would be potential friction that I we've heard a lot about how trying to restore forests in New York City and you have sort of this natural vegetation. But if you think about cool neighborhoods and even bringing urban trees into the situation to help with the temperature aspect – are you guys encountering any of that friction? Well, no, we should dedicate our resources to more about the cooling effects of trees in these neighborhoods versus restoring a more natural area. Who gets the money? How, is, how, is, how are your programs kind of dealing with it? I would guess there's a demand for those resources.
10: Yes, there is a push and pull, give and take, or or balance that needs to be struck between the two. I think um, New York City as a whole has a very large history with tree planting in the city. Um, and they tried a number of ways to go about planting these trees. So specifically, the Cool Neighborhoods Initiative money for street tree planting is going towards um, targeted F efforts in the heat-vulnerable neighborhoods, and they are doing it on a block scale.
0: This seems like one of the programs that allows you to interface with the public a bit more maybe than some of the other Mm -hmm. programs within urban forestry in New York. How is the public responding to it? Are you... T- talking with people on sort of a neighborhood-by-neighborhood neighborhood
10: basis? Specifically, my role in this program is to do the research component, so looking at the effects of trees on heat. So I go out and measure air temperature, indoor and outdoor, and we're also doing other energy and modeling campaigns. So while I'm outside, you know, i I'm either measuring or putting up the sensors or taking down the sensors. I do interact with a lot of people, and I've also been doing this heat mitigative work work in New York City for about five years so I would say they're varying responses
0: so is there a situation (laughs) Uh, where
10: to this effort
0: (laughs) okay give me an example of are you talking to someone in a neighborhood and does the issue of climate change come up have you had that conversation
10: most definitely (laughs) so give
0: me an interesting one
10: A lot of times people first approach me and ask me, oh, what are you doing? How is this affecting my neighborhood? So it's good that they show interest in what's going on, what's being put in their neighborhoods. And then we have a general discussion. Once I tell them, oh, this is an air temperature sensor, they go and ask, okay, what is, why is the city measuring my air temperature? So then I'm able to explain oh, you know, the air temperature in urban environments are usually warmer than rural environments. And we're trying to see ways in which vegetation can mitigate the air temperature in your neighborhood.
0: What's your favorite park in New York and why?
10: So my favorite park is Alley Pond Park. It's located in Queens, New York. Um, I did a lot of research in Alley Pond Park, had a lot of interesting experiences but it's the park where I received um, the most um, neighborhood feedback about what we were doing, what we were measuring, how it's affecting the, them in their neighborhood. So it's, you, re, you hear very interesting stories about the history of New York and um, how their park is servicing them. It's, and that's what we're all about, how to serve the citizens of New York.
0: Hey, Adapters, we are back and I am with...
11: Heather Lilliengren from the Greenbelt Native Plant Center. I am the supervising seed collector and field taxonomist.
0: What's sort of your role here in the urban forestry and climate adaptation?
11: We have a very unique position within the Parks Department. Provide plants for restoration throughout the five boroughs. And all those plants that we provide are from wild, local, collected seed. And what's so important about that is that all the seed holds the genetic adaptations that these plants have made throughout the years to be able to survive in such a harsh, fragmented urban environment.
0: Okay, so there's this genetic aspect of of the seeds making this area more resilient. But so climate change represents potential change. Dig a little bit deeper on that. How does that genetic stock really kind of help with that? How how is planting those native species and having that seed stock help uh, make it more resilient?
11: Well, I think cities are a good indicator of what the future holds for a lot of our habitats and ecosystems. There's a lot of pressure put on our natural ecosystems here within the city limits. The heat island effect, the pollution, all of these factors that contribute to the stress on these plants. If these plants have been able to figure out how to adapt in this harsher landscape, it it's a good sort of window into the elasticity and the uh, the way that these plants can continue to evolve within the landscape. We may not be as pristine as some other, you know, areas outside the city, but we still have amazing functioning ecosystems here that are a testament to the adaptability and the strength of these plants. And they're so important for not only Us, wanting to have clean water and clean air, but they're also important for all of the wildlife and pollinators that still exist here within the five boroughs.
0: I'm still trying to visualize the idea of like having the seed stock or do people who are doing restoration work, is it sort of made to order? Oh, we're going to need this kind of... I mean, how does it literally work? You've got where you're producing the seed stock, but then how does it get used in sort of a management way? How does that work?
11: Right. So we have a seed bank that holds all of this seed that I go out and collect. And from this seed bank, our propagator pulls these collections and grows them. And then these plants that we have are either for contract projects or they're special orders. Or there are species that we're trying to get back out there into the landscape and encourage landscape designers and different people working on projects throughout the five boroughs to use. So we're, we're growing these plants. We're pushing them back out into the landscape to hopefully contribute to these functioning ecosystems and strengthen them. Because what's important about that, that genetic material is that You know, once, once they're back out there in the landscape and they're, you know, being pollinated and genes are moving around and they're mixing and they're offering more diverse group of species and genes and the, the the flow of genes to the other plants that are in the landscape.
0: It shows my ignorance and I'm trying to think, can you actually track, let's say a bee is out there pollinating a certain plant of this new, this genetic stock stock that you put out there. Can you track a new location where maybe something's come up that was impacted by that pollinization of that new seed stock? Can you track it that way when you say, oh, look, you're doing a survey of plants over here? This represented some what we planted over there.
11: Well, the way that we try to think about it is how can we help augment the landscape with these native plants? So pollinators have a flying range and they can only fly within a certain range from their sort of host plants. So if you start connecting those dots by putting in these plant species, you know, on the edges of these ranges that will then connect to a different population that's elsewhere, you're essentially creating this matrix that pollinators can fly, you know, from one end of New York City to the other because you're connecting those dots by putting in these plant species that will connect these fragmented natural landscapes
0: is there any sort of real experimentation with the seed stock? And I, I don't know if you've heard of this and it's been a while since they did this, but I think it was like Michigan or Wisconsin where they were doing an experiment of planting seeds that represented like trees that might've been, you know, a thousand miles South, but they're planting like nature conservancy, I think did this. Yeah. Is there any experimentation of using the seed stock, I guess in that sort of more not radical way, but are you doing that? Or is it really just trying to fit into that native scene?
11: Well, from those common garden study models, we use those models to help inform the populations that we're collecting from. So we stay very local. We only travel within a 50 to 100 mile radius of New York City. And that's what we consider to be our local metropolitan flora. So we're only collecting from species, you know, within the five boroughs and then within that mileage range. There is an interesting aspect where some species, you know, can grow on top of mountains and then also grow alongside the seashore. So the elevation changes are important to think about as well. But we may not have mountains in New York City anymore, but we have green roofs. So if I'm out in the highlands of New Jersey collecting plants off the top of a mountain, I can look at those species and say, this might translate really well on a green roof in New York City is exposed to the same elevation, the same type of high winds and full sun. So it's it's kind of thinking about how this city can how, how can these built environments translate and mirror sort of our natural habitats. We are trying to collect as local as possible, so those Adaptations are not going to be um, something that's that's foreign or maladapted to our environments. We're not collecting from very far south or very, you know, out in the Adirondacks because their winters are so much different than ours. Their, their you know, summers are going to be so much different than ours. So, you know, staying within these ecoregions and these ecotypes are very important because you have to look at the whole breadth of what these plants exist within and deal with throughout the four seasons.
0: It's always hard to get you guys to really speculate, but you see some of those climate models that, oh, it, the Atlantic climate is going to move up and it's going to be where DC is. and DC is going to be moving up to, to New York. And your own sort of guess, what, what kind of plant, tree species do you think would maybe do well 50, 75 years out of some of the models that you guys are using now, like temperature rise. That's, I mean, that's a loaded question, but she's like, yeah. oh, I really think this, you know, the maple is going to, you know, not do well. I mean, what, what do you think? What do you think is going to maybe dominate the landscape?
11: I think it's important to look at the natural plant ranges of each species. So there's, for example, a, a tree like the red maple. It spans, you know, along the entire Atlantic coast. So that's a species that obviously is very adaptable to lots of different environments. It's something, you know, like we're we're never going to have spruce forests, you know, here in New York City. It's just not. We don't have the right environment and uh, colder temperatures that those um, a lot of your evergreen species need. I I think looking at the natural ranges of plant species can really help you realize what might be able to adapt and what cannot. I mean, there's so many species that no longer exist within New York City because we just don't have the proper ecosystems or habitats that can support those species anymore. Looking at the species that still can exist within urban areas are a really good window into the future of of how of, of what species you know might be here for centuries to come.
0: Twenty one hundred, they're mangrove forest in New York. You never know, right? <laughs> I'm from Florida, and mangrove forests are the best. So you know, you'd be right. lucky to get mangrove forests. Right. <laughs> What's your favorite park and why?
11: My favorite park in New York is part of Pelham Bay Park. It's a section called Hunter Island. You can hike along the coastline of this island that is no longer an island. It was connected back to land by Robert Moses. But it's an amazing hike in New York City. You feel like you're at the edge of it all, and you kind of forget that you're in one of the you know largest metropolises in the world.
0: So the next stop on my New York journey was the Arsenal, which is the New York City's Parks Department building located in Central Park. My host for the day was Caitlin Boas, and she brought me to a super stewards event located on the roof at the Arsenal. It was a great way to see Central Park. We were overlooking the Central Park Zoo and I could see otters swimming in the distance. On the rooftop, we were surrounded by huge trees. And behind those trees were huge skyscrapers, all being framed by a gorgeous sunset. It was a stunning and surreal landscape. There I got to mingle with New Yorkers who have dedicated their energies to helping the urban forest. Here are a few of their stories. Hey, adapters, we are back on the rooftop
12: here in Central Park, and I am with... Don Reckles, and I am a super steward and also a member of a Staten Island group called Protectors of Pine Oak Woods.
0: Okay, so what is a super steward?
12: A super steward is uh, someone that does work in the natural areas, usually involving invasive removal, that has been trained to recognize invasives and can go out and do the work on their own, and to take volunteers and supervise their work in the park.
0: Okay, so how long you have been doing this
12: kind of work in New York City? Well, as a super steward, only two years. But uh, as uh, protectors, because we do uh, forest restoration workshops, I've uh, been doing that for... Probably 16, 18 years.
0: Okay, so I'm going to kind of take a deep turn here. Part of the reason I'm here is doing urban forestry and climate adaptation. Mm -hmm. Has there been anything in the urban forest that you've seen changed over these last 15, 20 years? Anything you notice, wildlife or species or just people's awareness around these issues? Anything like that's kind of come across your plate?
12: Well, the biggest thing from a Staten Island perspective is deer. When I first started going to Staten Island 18, 20 years ago, you didn't see deer. Now there are, I think there are close to 3,000 on the island. The figures depend on who's doing the surveying. And they're doing a tremendous amount of damage in the parks. The herbivory is pretty awful. Some of the parks have become what I call a deer savanna, where you can walk into the park. It looks nice and green, green trees above you, but there are hardly any shrubs. And under the trees, you can see for hundreds and hundreds of feet because the deer have eaten everything down low. It's made terrible changes.
0: So are there any particular climate impacts that you think the work that you're doing with the stewards program that would be helpful? Has it been communicated to you through the city? Your work is helping on this issue in this way.
12: We work on trying to retard the advance of uh, alien plants and so forth. Some of that is promoted by climate change. I do think uh, that our summers have become warmer. Spring has become uh, much earlier in the year. And the invasive plants take advantage of these things because uh, they're very capable of kind of changing their life cycle to adapt. Whereas our native plants are stuck in the groove that they've been in for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So uh, I think climate change does make uh, for more alien species growing in our woods, more invasive vines and so forth.
0: Okay, last question. What's your favorite New York City park and why?
12: I think my favorite park is probably Mount Loretto on Staten Island, simply because it has a variety of different environments. You're out there looking at the, over the Raritan Bay, or you're walking on the bluffs, there are freshwater ponds, you cross the street, you end up in a state
0: forest. You've got it all. Hey Adapters, I'm back with another conversation here on a rooftop in Central Park, and I'm with
13: Jessica Downs. I am an environmental attorney. I am from Brooklyn, New York, and I take care of my local street trees and my local park.
0: So that's why you're here. You're a steward for that work that you're doing. Could you kind of elaborate a bit more on that?
13: I will make sure that the trees around my home are, they are cleaned out of glass, of cigarette butts, commonly littered items. So I will make sure that the trees are healthy. And I try really hard to make sure that the community is engaged while this is happening. It has been my experience that people care a great deal but they have a very hard time figuring out where to start. And so making sure that this is accessible to people is pretty important to me. And I will also remove invasive vines and plants from the local park because that actually becomes highly hazardous and most people don't realize that that's an option and that it is a hazard
0: just through my conversation sometimes the linkage between what the city is doing on climate change adaptation getting the city ready for sea level rise through urban heat island effects with the increased temperatures how do you kind of perceive like let's say the stewards program and people really on the ground doing that kind of really important work but how can the climate change message sort of filter down to that level? Is, is there a need for it, or is it happening?
13: There is a need, and it is happening. For example, in my in my community board, they're actually installing a lot of bioswales, which are these fascinating bits of green infrastructure where the tree beds are transformed into essentially rain captures to help prevent things like flooding of the sewer system, which is unfortunately common, in my district happens to be right on the water. So the runoff is dramatic right there so any any little piece really really helps making sure that for example the soil on a street tree is not compacted actually does a significant amount to save the waterways right around that area perhaps more than in some other areas so i think it's very important that people know that they shouldn't be littering because the runoff problem is dramatic and that they can do things to make sure that the trees are cared for that will actually end up helping them down the line.
0: Okay, and and I'm gonna make some leaps there. Let's say there's increased rain events because of climate change. And what you just described is sort of, okay, here's the consequence. These are some of the adaptation actions we can do to mitigate that. Would that be an accurate description? Definitely. Okay, what about urban heat island? Do you feel like with your neighbors, does that come up? It's like, we gotta plant more trees because things are gonna get hotter. Is it as simple as that?
13: It's not 100% as simple as that. There are more things that can be done, and there are more things that are being done citywide, but it is a thing that does come up. So I teach a lot of little kids when we're on our volunteer events about how transpiration happens and how trees actually work actively, not just passively, to cool city streets. And it's a fun little factoid for kids, but it also teaches them about the level of interconnectedness in the environment around them that they're not necessarily thinking of.
0: Great answer. Okay, actually, last question here. What's your favorite New York park and why?
13: I'm going to say Owl's Head and be very selfish because that's our local park that we take care of. It has a beautiful hill for sledding town. It has wooded areas. It has planted areas. It has a playground,
14: and it has a fantastic view of the city.
0: Hey, actors, I am back, and I am with...
14: Melissa Elstein of Love Your Street Tree Day.
0: Okay, so why are you here tonight?
14: Well, I'm here because I'm a super steward, super tree steward. I've been trained trained with Trees New York, as well as the Parks Department, on how to be a volunteer tree steward. So I care for and create large community events around the New York City street trees. We had the Million Trees Initiative in New York under mayor bloomberg and new york restoration project as well as td bank and mayor bloomberg and the parks department planted a million trees but they didn't have and they don't have enough funding obviously to do maintenance on all the trees and to do outreach so they rely on citizen printers to take care of the trees as well as to do community organizing and so we that's how i got um, involved with the city the stewardship
0: You're an organizer and you're getting folks in your immediate neighborhood involved. Like what what really is on the ground work that you're doing?
14: So in my case, initially it was in my neighborhood. I'm based on the Upper West Side. But we were finding that people were coming from outside of our neighborhood. So originally it was the West 80s on the Upper West Side. But because some people are coming from Upper East Side, we've had people from Riverdale, from Midtown, from uh, Lower East Side even, that's when we decided to make it Love Your Street Tree Day instead of just with the West 80s Neighborhood Association and not have any boundaries, basically.
0: Okay, so this episode that I'm doing is on urban forestry and climate adaptation. You're out there really on the ground doing this kind of work, planting trees, getting people involved. How has climate change kind of come up At your level, are you hearing it from the city? Are you hearing it from your neighbors? Are you hearing it at all?
14: Well, definitely from the city, obviously, and also when in the schools. We've done some events at schools, and we have a big poster here. I'm wearing—you can't see it's a podcast, but I'm wearing a T-shirt with our logo, and we have "quote unquote" the good tree and the bad tree, where we have all of the things that can harm a tree and why and so we talk about our relationship between we talk about the relationship between humans and the trees and that even in the city obviously the reciprocal relationship and even more so in a way because we have high asthma rates in the city and so with uh, planting more trees we reduce the asthma rates but the trees again they need maintenance so that's where i feel like the citizens come in the city plants them and then needs the volunteers so the school children love to do it we've done a number of earth day events at different schools and we talk about that so they're aware and then we make it fun at the same time you know so that's why we have this fun logo with the little dog and the smiling tree and then the sad tree that's not being cared for
0: okay so climate change we're talking about sea level rise drought heat stress Is there something that the city that would be useful to you, that resources that would make your job easier? Or do you feel like you really need that kind of information at at sort of the local level?
14: Well, I also wanted to bring in just uh, the heat island effect. So, you know, we're seeing that we're a tar city, right? And with the trees, it actually cools the neighborhoods. I mean, you can actually feel the difference from leaving the street and going into the parks. It's quite obvious. But even in this in the streets where you have a tree canopy, you feel the difference, especially on a really hot day. So that's another reason for planting the trees. Uh, also for you know, biodiversity as well, with the birds creating ha- habitat. The other issue that we're facing in New York is with the combined sewage overflow issue. And a lot of older cities, old infrastructure that we have, when it storms, which you've had all week, all week, all I've been thinking about is all these Rainstorms, all that sewage is going directly into the riverways because of our combined sewage system. And so if you have more green infrastructure, which is the tree beds, bioswells, green roofs, it slows down that stormwater, and hopefully there'll be less sewage going into the waterways. We have to become compliant with the Clean Water Act which right now we're not. And so that's why the city is also making a push for more of this green infrastructure. Now, it's not just a matter of planting the trees, because if you've noticed, now you're from Tucson, but if you've walked around the city, a lot of the tree beds, especially the older ones, are hard as rocks. They're not, the soil isn't permeable. So it, it's, it has to also include this soft, permeable soil, which happens when you put well you cultivate it you put compost you put mulch you do the daffodil bulbs or any bulbs that will break it up or you do planting so those are things that i try to share and educate because i didn't know any of this until i did my training with trees new york in the parks and now i walk around the city and i look down at the tree beds and i'm like fascinated and thinking all the time like oh that's really good soil and that's going to slow down the rainwater and keep our rivers cleaner it's all connected
0: okay last question What's your favorite New York City park and why?
14: Well, like I guess I live on the Upper West Side, so I'm in Central Park almost every day. I jog in the park on the bridal path. I did my Trees New York training here in the Arsenal, which was amazing. I have a favorite tree that I kind of nestle with when I want to meditate, a huge London plane, massive tree. And I, at this point in my life, I feel like without Central Park, and Lincoln Center, I probably wouldn't even be living in New York because I am older now and I feel like I need more of the calming aspects than when I was young and going to clubs and, you know, but now that I'm a little more mellow, the park, I mean, I just feel the tension just melt away.
0: So we are on to the next phase of this trip. My interviews in Manhattan were over and I was taken to the New York City Urban Field Station located just outside of Fort Totten. The field station is located in Queens, New York, so I got to travel across the boroughs. It's right on the bay on a beautiful peninsula. I was in New York, but there wasn't a skyscraper in sight. I got to spend a couple days at the field station, interviewing experts based there and visiting some of the parks. Let's check in with Dr. Lindsay Campbell of the U.S. Forest Service. Hey, doctors, we are back in I Am New York City, and I'm with...
15: I'm Lindsay Campbell. I'm a research social scientist with the USDA Forest Service.
0: Okay, so I'm in a different location now. Where am I?
15: We are sitting at the Urban Field Station, which is a small, renovated, 1950s, you know, former military bunker that now serves as our base here in New York City. And by our, I mean the partnership between the USDA Forest Service and the New York City Parks Department. And this is a shared facility where we have an office, a lab, and a residential space that people can use for free if they're studying the city as a social ecological system. So we're on a former military base. We're on the Long Island Sound, surrounded by other public agencies like the fire department, the Coast Guard, US Army, and we're a, a little hub for research and innovation about urban ecosystems.
0: I can vouch for the living space i'm staying there for a couple nights and there's some uh, researchers up there looking at sparrows in the wetlands and how sea level rise is impacting their populations and apparently it's going down so that's really cool related to what we're doing here i'm very familiar with the forest service but you guys do a lot more research than i thought you guys ever did could you explain your role here in new york city it's not you're not land managers here right
15: exactly the forest service doesn't own or manage any land we have no regulatory authority in new york city So the way we show up is as a research partner and through our expertise, and our main partners are the New York City Parks Department, the largest land manager in the city, the Natural Areas Conservancy, which focuses on the forests and wetlands and meadows, and then a whole slew of NGOs and community-based groups that we partner with through our research.
0: What I find really interesting about the work that you're doing and how it relates to adaptation is a lot of the social research that you're doing, so walk us through that.
15: Yeah, absolutely. The, the Forest Service has a strong tradition of social science research, and we're working on a lot of that here in New York City with a focus in particular on civic stewardship. And what I mean by that is the ways in which NGOs, community-based groups, people that don't necessarily own the land, but they're involved in the care and management and advocacy and the sort of shaping of that landscape, we call those groups stewardship groups. And we think they're really important to understand and visualize and map so that we can better manage the city as a social ecological system. So what I mean by that is we often, as natural resource managers, we turn to our green maps, you know, our tree canopy maps, our green infrastructure maps, the, the maps of the biophysical resource. But we also need to understand the social infrastructure. We need to understand the groups that care for those spaces and where they are in physical space in order to include them in our, our planning and our policy making and our adaptation processes. Those groups, they might not even necessarily be environmental groups. They could be civic associations, block associations, youth groups, senior groups, but they're all engaging in the care for the local environment. And they have crucial local ecological knowledge about those systems. They're on the front line of responding to changes in those systems and in that way they need to really be a part of our planning for social resilience
0: okay so you have a place like new york city a lot of people living together having to work together and what you're just describing again this idea of social resilience and hopefully in the face of climate change the bigger issue they're going to be better prepared. Could you maybe describe a project? We chatted a little bit about some of this. I, mean, I think there was a memorial where the people came together from nine one one that relates to this and probably has applications on how people are going to be more resilient to climate change.
15: Absolutely, yes. So the very first project that that brought me here to New York was the Living Memorials project, and in that, the Forest Service wanted to understand. The ways in which people were using landscape after september 11th and using landscape as memorial as gathering space as community space that they were sort of programming space to respond to that acute disturbance we have an emphasis on long-term research here and we continued to follow those sites and those groups for 15 years after they were created to understand how they persisted or changed over time and through that we found some really powerful examples of groups and places that are fostering not only social resilience, but even social ecological resilience. So one example we've written about is Sterling Forest, which is in Tuxedo, New York, in the greater New York metro area, where the hemlock overstory trees are dying from the hemlock woolly adelgid, but they are planting white pines in the understory to restore the forest, So you'll have a healthy forest growing, but they're doing it as part of a therapeutic kind of community healing project where they've worked with uh, 9-11 family members or victim of violence and war. And so they're restoring the landscape and they're also restoring people's uh, lives and well-being. So I think that's a really powerful example. Another one is from... Babylon, Long Island, which is a coastal community that was really heavily impacted by September 11th. They had a lot of police and firefighters there who died. And the beach is their most important site of social meaning in their community. So they created a memorial on the barrier island, but instead of it just being granite, and steel, they revegetated the dunes with native grasses. And actually that memorial, which was planted all with volunteers, you know, sustained Hurricane Sandy really well. So it was this performative landscape in both senses of the word. It, it, It sustained coastal impacts, but it also connects community members as a site of remembrance and healing.
0: Okay so this notion of social resilience and I think of like 911 or Hurricane Sandy which is more the natural giant disturbance with the research that you do at looking at metrics of what really is social resilience do you feel that New York has always been socially resilient can you say today they're more resilient because of responses to these big events can you can you kind of dig down to that level and define what resilience is
15: hmm. Hard to talk about the the condition of the system overall over time being more or less resilient. But I think what we've tried to emphasize are how to know social resilience when you see it, right? There are a lot of frameworks and concepts out there, but what we've tried to do is operationalize those down to things that people could actually see in the landscape that might be kind of building blocks of of resilience and the ways in which those connect to stewardship. We've looked a lot at the role of stewardship in this context of disturbance, many different kinds of disturbances, like you mentioned, acute ones, Hurricane Sandy, September 11th, but also slower moving disturbances like invasive pests or chronic disinvestment. And what we found is it's this patterned human response for people to want to be involved in knitting their communities back together, including through greening practices. Um, You know, trees, flowers, shrubs, they're accessible. They're something that kind of anyone can get their hands around for the most part. And people need space to kind of shape the landscape to their needs. So when I say, how do you know resilience when you see it? We've looked for these, these indicators, things like place naming, place attachment, the fact that a group gives a place a special name, that's a sign that they're investing their their care into that site. We look for social cohesion and social networks, meaning people working together to kind of solve problems collectively. We look for social trust. I mean, these things that can be very hard to see are some of the fundamental building blocks of social resilience. And I think it's so crucial because we've learned this lesson again and again that we don't want to adapt to the prior disturbance because the next disturbance isn't going to look the same. So after Hurricane Sandy, you know, rightfully there was a lot of attention on the coastal vulnerability of New York City, but we remain vulnerable to heat stress, to failures in the grid, to winter storm events, to precipitation <laughs> events. It's been raining all week. And, and in that, we need to see the role of these community-based groups in sort of really being on the ground, having a sense of community priorities, community needs, community sites of social meaning that we need to sort of harness and learn from that local knowledge in our adaptation planning. And if we don't, we, we do that at our peril.
0: So this concept of managed retreat is coming up more and more in you know places like Florida, but I, uh, as I discovered that New York City has tremendous amount of coastline. You're doing a lot of social science research. Are you looking at managed retreat yet?
15: We haven't looked here at the field station specifically at managed retreat. We have some colleagues in academia that have started to look into that. Um, I think there, there's definitely a lot to be learned from the examples of where it happens voluntarily. And particularly understanding the the community dynamics that are there, I think again paying attention to these grassroots and local civic groups and the way in which their sort of voice and the networks that they create uh, plays a role in shaping outcomes, I think is really crucial. I know the Staten Island case had a very kind of vocal and organized local community base that said, "Yeah, it." it's time, we're ready to do this, you know? And so I think our planning solutions for climate change, like I said, they they cannot be top-down or they're they're destined to, to fail. They need to bring community into decision-making in a, a meaningful and inclusive way. And so, yes, we need public fora, public comment periods. We need all those sort of government-led processes, but we also need to stop and listen to what communities are sort of organically telling us already. And that's a lot of our work with with stewardship mapping is just to try and identify these hyper-local nodes of their, their, their pockets of community knowledge and organizing that need to be recognized and built upon as part of these adaptation conversations. With the work that we did after September 11th, Looking at the role of stewarding the landscape after that disturbance, we we sometimes got pushback that that was sort of a singular event in American history, and of course we would expect to see this kind of a response. But through our research and through our partnerships and through conversations that we've had nationally and even globally, we've found that actually this stewardship in the context of disturbance and recovery is really you know a patterned human response. So whether it's wildfire, invasive pest. You know, tornado, disinvestment, community stewardship has a role to play in that longer term recovery cycle. And that's why we started to use the phrase green responders. So yes, we need first responders, we need to stabilize life and property and really focus on that uh, immediate response stage. But natural resource managers and planners and community stewards all have a role to play in that longer term timeline of recovery and planning and adaptation.
0: What's your favorite New York City park and why?
15: <laughs> oh, great. My favorite New York City park is Valentino Pier in Red Hook, in my neighborhood. It's a tiny little waterfront site. Uh, it's got views of the stat- a Statue of Liberty. You can see the entire New York Harbor, but also it has a little piece of soft shoreline where um, people put in kayaks, where people's dogs play in the water. And that's, that's so rare and precious. Um, our coastline is really hardened and has a lot of bulkheads. And it's just this glimpse of what uh, a more naturalized shoreline might look like. And it's also, it's a community hub in its own right. It's my favorite park.
16: Hey, adapters we are back and i am with peter lechner of new york city parks department i'm a forest restoration project leader and i work generally in the bronx but we are a citywide agency what's some of the work that
0: you're doing what's like a day-to-day thing for you
16: so day-to-day we restore degraded areas throughout uh, the natural areas in new york city i'm on the upland forest restoration team and generally we go into areas that have been blown down by storms or degraded due to construction, and then we plant native species that should be there and uh, try to protect them as they grow.
0: Okay, let's talk a little bit about Pelham Park. This is actually a large park in New York City most people have never heard of. I never heard of it until I came for this episode. Talk about sea level rise, and how is it impacting some of the restoration work that you're doing?
16: Yeah, uh, Pelham Bay is the largest park in the city, over 2,700 acres, and it's right on the Long Island Sound. We're continuously seeing areas that are flooded, throughout the year that really haven't been flooded uh, just five years ago. And so it's kind of shifting the species that will be able to live there long-term. So if you plant a tree in in a flooded area, maybe it can make it five, five, 10 years. But if you're looking for longevity and getting the most most, uh, benefit out of taxpayer dollars and when we put these trees in the ground, we really want these native areas to be secure with strong old growing canopies. So we're, we're having issues predicting where these flooded spots are going to be and how long they're going to be there. And it kind of looks like a lot of areas are going to be flooded more often than not, which really limits the diversity of the pallet we can plant in a certain area.
0: Okay. I think a lot of people struggle, and I'm originally from Florida, is that you can plant uh, restoration around long-term sea level rise, which is one thing, but then you have a storm event, which is another thing, and how to plants kind of cope with those two extremes and i guess the the disturbance of a storm probably weighs more heavily than long-term sea level rise planning
16: yeah and a lot of our work is in upland forests but what we see now is we'll have these storms come through that are really intense and the soil when it's really saturated is so the roots aren't as strong as they can be when the soil is you know being infiltrating the water and then we'll get species like black locusts which generally spread through suckers so they don't have a deep taproot system we'll get a storm event that comes through it'll knock down the black locusts in the center of a really secure um, native forest and then we'll have to go in and make sure that the invasive species don't blow up because they they generally like disturbance and sun so when you have an oak hickory forest with a patch of black locust, which is not native to this region. When that patch of black locust gets knocked over by a storm, you'll have a species like mile a minute regenerate or generate in that area and then blow up and kind of take over the habitat and create a monoculture.
0: Well, if you could briefly describe that, it's a great name, mile a minute. And if you think of shifting climate regimes in new york having to deal with things mile a minute is all is
16: now this big issue that you're dealing with right right yeah it's uh, been shown to grow six inches a day and it is a vine like growing weed what it does is it clings onto the small trees so when we plant a tree if it's only five to 15 feet tall the mile a minute can grow up over the top of the tree and then the skeletons in the wintertime they will be over the top of the tree, and when we get a heavy snow, it'll snap the tree because it lands on the skeletons of the of the tree. You know, the tree has lost its leaves in the winter, so the snow would generally shed off, but these skeletons of vines over the trees will actually snap the trees. So that's one of the issues um, among many other. Um, it, it totally shades out everything else. It won't let our native flowers thrive or other herb- herbaceous layers, so... <clears throat> the issue of adapting to climate change it's
0: probably showing up on your plate a lot more and you're an ambassador to the public,
16: you interact with the public on occasion, how's that kind of coming up? How's it being an issue for you? Generally when people ask about what we're doing, they're, they're wondering, what species are you planting and are, when they see us planting into a flooded area, they're asking are those trees actually going to live there? And we go into the spiel of we're adapting, you know, on a regular basis to plant species that can handle these conditions. We are running out of areas that are generally drier than, drier, or as dry as they should be. So we explained to them that we have to switch the way that we're restoring these areas to, uh, to adapt to this like really rapid changing thing going on. They ask about, you know, areas why we selected them. And then we can just show, you know, this canopy got knocked down by that really bad storm that happened last August. And they'll say, yes, I remember that storm. And it's a shame those huge 100-year-old oak trees got knocked over. And then we can explain why we need to secure these areas and, and do what we do. What's your favorite New York City park and why? My favorite park is Pelham Bay. It's the largest park in the city. It has so much to offer. It has a beach. Um, there's shows there. There's great lawn areas for recreating. It has so many different types of habitat. It has salt marshes, lagoons, upland forests, hummocks, you know, um, everything going for It's got white-tailed deer, great horned owls, wild turkeys, coyotes, bobcats. Yeah, it's a great park.
0: Hey, we are back, and I'm with...
17: I'm Rich Hallett. U.S. Forest Service. I'm a research ecologist based at the New York City Urban
0: Field Station. Okay, so what do you do with the Forest Service?
17: My area of expertise is studying tree and forest health. And here in the city, I've been really working on understanding the how to grow forests in the city and how to help the Parks Department specifically and the Natural Areas Conservancy in, in applied
0: research questions. From our earlier conversation, you've been doing this for a while. You're very familiar with what maybe a forest should look like. And we're talking, we're sort of heading into a sort of a new regime with climate change. How has that influenced your work? Has it changed much at all in what you're recommending or is it still too early for that?
17: Yeah. So we're in a new regime with respect to climate, but also within the forest uh, research community, we're in a new regime with urban forests. They haven't always been recognized as places where uh, we have forests in the city. And so we're really thinking hard about the things we've learned about our rural forests and trying to understand, uh, how our forests in the city are the same or different. Uh, surprisingly, we're finding that, uh, our rural forested, urban forested natural areas are, uh, very similar to our rural forests. Although we treat them very differently, of course. Rural forest management has primarily been driven by timber harvesting. And of course, in the city, we're not extracting timber or board feet from our forests. Forests are giving us things like ecosystem services,
0: beauty, and uh, cultural services. Sometimes it's hard to explain the value of forests, especially urban forests, even though we they think they're pretty, but they're, there's pollution areas that you know they mitigate against. But now we think about the impacts of climate change, rising temperatures. So there's a cooling effect. Has that been sort of a demand placed on your kind of work where you're sort of explaining these kind of new, and they're not necessarily new, but the, the, these additional benefits of having a healthy forest.
17: Yeah, definitely. The urban heat island effect is is real. And it turns out that trees can act like great big air conditioners. They transpire a lot of water and cool the surrounding environment. But also on the other side of that, the urban environment uh, is not the environment that trees evolve to grow in. So, uh, we are asking a lot of our urban trees, and uh, one of those things is to cool the environment, but we're also trying to understand the impacts of that increased temperature regime on the health of the trees. In other words, if we want to maximize the ecosystem services and cooling effects of our urban canopy,
0: if it's healthier, it'll do a better job. of This partnership that you have with the, the city and the Natural Areas Conservancy, it's a nonprofit. It's really, I mean, it's people are hearing over and over again, this kind of really tight, unique relationship, but there are competing interests. I would imagine the Forest Service, I mean, there really is, you know, nature-based priorities, but with maybe the city, there's, there's such a demand for like thinking about the built environment. How, how does that kind of come into play when you look at the science that you're forming all this? I don't really view that as
17: competing interests, as, as more of maybe complexity and, and complementary goals. I have a specific skill set and mandate to uh, do research and design studies. I really love working very closely with the land management agencies like the Parks Department and the Natural Areas Conservancy to find out what questions they have, what needs do they have. And then I can help design research that can help answer those questions and, by the way, advance our science and knowledge.
0: You've been doing research for a a bit now. Any sort of surprises for you, like now that you've been something that's really kind of not shocked you, but what you're seeing out there now?
17: Yeah, I've been thinking about this recently. I've always loved being outdoors and loved trees and um, spent most of my time studying forests in, in our national forests and rural areas. And since coming to the city... It's given me a whole new appreciation of how truly amazing trees are. They're incredibly resilient. They have so much more value than just the board feet they produce. We're recognizing that in our national forest. But when you move into the city and see how people respond to trees and the green spaces they have access to,
0: it has given me a truly new appreciation for the value of trees and forests. Great way to end this. Last question. And um, What's your favorite New York City park and why?
17: My favorite New York City park, it has to be, uh, I guess, Inwood Hills Park. It's amazing to me because it's it's on the island of Manhattan, one of our most densely populated areas in this country, and there's old growth forest there. You can walk into that forest, and it's like
0: you're in an office. Hey, we are out in the woods, and I am with Peter Lechner. And where are we? We're in Palm Bay Park. It is in northeast corner of the Bronx. We chatted earlier, but we have a chance actually to get out in the field, and I want you to sort of explain what's going on here. There's some tree plantings, and could you tell the story of like the the different uh, heights of these different trees, even though you planted them at the same time?
16: Yeah. So behind us, we have some tulip poplars and some sweet gums they're native trees to this area at the time of the planting which was fall of 2014 we didn't really have a high deer density the deer density has shot up drastically in the past five years so Tulip poplars grow really fast, and sweet gums are not preferred by deer, so those trees are ten to fifteen, even more than that, in height right now. Whereas species such as hop hornbeam and smaller, smaller oaks are uh, still only like two or three feet tall, very small. But they're all the same age, so it just goes to show the uh, impact that the high deer density is having on our plantings. Okay. I want you to
0: help my listeners visualize what am I looking at? There's this plastic sheath over this tree that's 12 inches tall. It's the same age as these 15 foot tall trees. What's going on with these plastic sheaths? It's creating some trouble that they have to grow in these things, right?
16: right so we just started uh, installing uh, tree guards they're roughly four feet tall and so what they do is protect the tree from getting browsed on that's their main purpose so the the deer won't be able to attack the tree until it gets up out of the top of the tree guard so the tree guards they'll make the tree grow really fast one issue with that is the tree since it's protected by a guard that is staked into the ground is not able to wobble back and forth in the wind and that does not allow it to send out its roots to strengthen its root system so when we slide the guards off, after even being on for a few months, the trees will flop over because they're growing at such a fast rate that they get really top-heavy, and the stem is more rubbery and not solid like it should be.
0: Okay, tell me the, the, the link between deer and climate change.
16: It's really complicated. You're going to keep it simple. But I'll keep it simple. <laughs> All right, <sorry. laughs> Deer, as a lot of other species, they thrive in warmer conditions. Uh, historically, we used to have 8 to 10... Uh, roughly deer per square mile in this region could be even less in degraded habitats we're currently at 41 per square mile in pelham bay one issue is is we don't have the predators we used to have another is the climate is so moist and warm all the time there's constant food and there's no threat of danger for them so they basically just hang out and consume our our native plantings 24 7 they just keep repopulating and there's no end in sight until we possibly get a disease uh, that comes in and and takes them out, which is also diseases such as EHD, which are transmitted by midges uh, in the Midwest. A disease like that, if it would get here, some people have shown that with climate change it's going to be much more severe and it can take out deer populations at a larger level than it ever has before. Look at all this attention being paid to these trees
0: that are in these sheaths as an adaptation action why don't you just give up on them they're not they're not stepping it up they're not dealing with this deer population growth that you can't control in other ways so why, why keep planting these things
16: well i feel it's i feel it's our responsibility to use adaptive management these trees have been purchased and they're everyone's trees throughout new york city or whoever visits here we all share them equally so it's our job to ensure their survival the tree guards are a new idea we had used repellents and, and other methods to keep the deer out but we just have to keep evolving and we have to keep sharing information all across the u.s and how to how to manage these pests when they get here whether it be deer insects diseases temperature pollution whatever it may be we need to keep sharing information with each other to ensure that these very healthy ecosystems continue to grow and thrive
0: Our journey is almost over, so I wanted to check in with Ian Leahy, the Vice President of Urban Forestry at American Forests, to talk about what's next for urban forestry and climate adaptation.
18: Hey, adapters! I am back, and I am with... Ian Leahy, Vice President of Urban Forestry at American Forests.
0: Okay, listeners, Ian has been my point of contact for this episode, and I want to give you guys some context of how this episode all came about. So, Ian... Tell me a bit about why are you working with the Forest Service, Natural Areas Conservancy, the City Parks in New
18: York? What What's that whole partnership about? Yeah, New York City is really a leading laboratory in our field. Uh, they have just the visibility, the resources, and just vision to really try new things and see what works and sometimes what doesn't work. But so as a national organization, we really learn a lot from what's happening in that city. Like the uh, urban research station at the Forest Service is really a leading group in terms of research and equitable implementation of tree canopy projects. The Natural Area Conservancy has really taken managing large open spaces, which are actually more prevalent in New York City than people realize, and really elevating their role in the climate conversation and in the workforce development conversation. So we probably wouldn't even be doing this episode unless it was the, uh, uh, the, the Vibrant Cities program
0: that f- people have probably heard a couple times already before, but could you elaborate on that program? So
18: Vibrant Cities Lab emerged from an idea that all of our really great technical resources as a field were just scattered, buried in government websites, and it really wanted to just elevate the visibility of a lot of really great work our field has been doing for decades now. So we got together with the U.S. Forest Service, the National Association of Regional Councils, and kind of brought this vision together of creating this hub online called the Vibrant Cities Lab that could really just be a one-stop curated shop for our field. So that anybody, even if you don't think about trees, you don't work with trees, you know, you're like, yeah, trees are great, whatever. But it's a way to kind of take our field's expertise and speak to you. Um, so one part is the Make the Case section, which has a summary of all the latest research on the impacts toward fields like education, transportation, some more typical ones that you might think of as air and water quality, uh but human health as well. And really just gearing the portions of our field that speak to those audiences that are trying to address specific needs, like improving test scores, reducing respiratory illness, reducing crime rates. A lot of people don't realize how much urban trees actually contribute to that. And the important part is Vibrant Cities Lab isn't a propaganda website. It really lays out the latest research, pros and cons, so that you you have a trusted source to go to. Um, so a lot of times, for example You know, people say, hey, I don't want trees in the parks. I don't want another place for criminals to hide. Fair point. And the research shows that in poorly maintained parks, that is a very real situation that could occur. But the research also finds in parks where the trees are invested in, the green space is being taken care of well, it actually reduces crime. So really getting that message out there. And it's a site that can speak to everything from a skeptical resident who doesn't want to slip on acorns. To you know, a massive city council in a city like New York that maybe needs to be convinced on budgetary issues or, or something of that nature. As people are listening to this episode,
0: I just I think it's fantastic what you guys are doing. Even with the, the supporting this podcast, is that what I learned up there is that unique partnership between the three organizations and obviously American Forest, and it's a chemistry that's hard to duplicate. So just you know, kudos to American Forest being
18: part of that. And are there? Other cities that you're kind of seeing similar partnerships unfold? Absolutely, yeah. We work in 22 cities nationwide of all different sizes. Detroit is one of our primary partners. We played a central role there in facilitating partnerships between different city agencies and local nonprofits, and the U.S. Forest Service is a big partner there. Universities like Michigan State University. And we just really brought everybody around the table to think through, what is a vision for this specific city? And obviously New York and Detroit are couldn't be more polar opposites in terms of what the opportunities are. Whereas New York's successful million trees program, the, the only city so far to actually reach a million tree goal. They squeeze trees in everywhere they could possibly find, and there's just not a lot of spaces outside of the big parks to do that. Whereas in Detroit, you have a unique situation of 23 square miles of vacant land that could really be reimagined as you know vibrant green spaces working forests that could really be used for urban wood utilization, park space, recreation space, that sort of thing. So we're really exploring that there. Houston is another example. Before the uh, last hurricane that came through, we had started working there to really help the urban forest adapt to the increasing storm surges that are coming to Houston. And part of that is A management side in terms of just building capacity of organizations and government investment, but it's also really looking at the tree species themselves and what's going to thrive there in the coming decades as the climate is warming. And we partner with NIACS, which is the Northern Institute of Applied Climate Science, another U.S. Forest Service division. They're based in Minnesota and Michigan, and they they do these climate vulnerability assessments that really look at a city like they did a great one for Chicago that we work in to really just say, okay, here's where your urban forest is now. Here's what's going to be best coming in the near future. Okay, before we finish
0: this journey, I wanted to take you one more time into the urban forest. Let's wrap this episode up with another visit to Central Park so you can hear the sights and sounds of nature in this giant metropolis. It's a nice reminder of why people from this episode are doing the amazing work they are doing. Okay, so we are walking here through the North Woods. I'm yeah. here with Justin, and so uh, describe what we're seeing. What are some of the species around, and what, what's the landscape like?
7: Okay, uh, so we're on a hillside in the North Woods, walking along a path, uh, and what we're walking through is mostly a really good example of a native forest. Uh, In the overstory, some of the largest trees are oaks. Uh, This is a red oak, and further back was a very large white oak. We're seeing some black cherry in the overstory and midstory, and then down in the understory, we're seeing some maple and some hickory, some elm and some sassafras, so it's a really great mix of native species. And, of course, there are going to be some species here that aren't native. I see some mulberry around uh, and I saw a tree of heaven back there a little ways. But this is a forest that has had time to recover, has been a forest for quite a long time and is comprised of mainly natives and is holding sort of its character as a native forest, even though it's in an area
0: that is prone to a lot of invasion. My bird watching listeners would probably be able to identify some of the sounds, but what what are some of the birds we're hearing? Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) Well,
7: let's see. What have I seen around here recently? We're definitely hearing jays, blue jays. We're definitely hearing robins. Uh, I heard a mockingbird earlier. Uh, We passed some mallards. There's a snowy egret that lives in the lake right down below us that I see frequently. At times of year since the park is kind of on the north atlantic flyway there's times of year where this is one of the best birding destinations in the country i've been told but earlier in the spring i was seeing a lot of flickers and woodpeckers the forest is pretty dense now so it's a little harder to pick them out any ivory-billed woodpeckers i've not seen an ivory-billed
0: woodpecker Okay, adapters. That is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that journey to New York City. I was blown away by the complexity of the work that they are doing and the role urban forests can play in adapting to climate change. I also want to highlight the partnership or shared stewardship, as they are calling it, that these organizations have put together. It's a rich partnership of city nonprofit and federal agencies. Building a resilient community is not easy, and it takes expertise, funding and innovative thinking to do this. As you heard, climate change is throwing some serious curveballs at these forestry experts, and they have responded in kind. I hope other cities can learn from New York's model. It's still early days in how we adapt to climate change, but New York has shown that they are ready. I look forward to telling more stories in the years ahead on what Gotham is doing to adapt. I'd also like to thank American Forest again for generously sponsoring this episode. And thanks to my host in New York, especially Caten Boas, who arranged my travel and juggled a very complex interview schedule. Everyone I worked with there was gung-ho to participate, and it made my job that much easier. Thanks again for participating, guys. And thanks to Ian Leahy at American Forest for making all the things happen behind the scenes. I have extensive links in my show notes if you want to take a deeper dive on the work they are doing, so definitely check those out. Also, if you and your organization are interested in partnering on a specific podcast like I did here in New York, let me know. There are so many stories to tell on this emerging issue of Adaptation. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. Also, if you are interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I've been doing some keynote presentations, and they are so much fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in adaptation, and I talk about science communication and the value of podcasts. You can contact me at americadaps.org. Just look for my email on that site. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for guests, let me know. It's the highlight of my week. I'm at gmail.com. Okay, Adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.